looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What's going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 541. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got returning guest Robert O'Mara from Dublin, Ireland, a screenwriter extraordinaire and big, giant movie freak. And we're going to be tackling the career of director J. Lee Thompson, a filmmaker who we have dipped our toes into his career on many occasions in the past, whether you're talking the Planet of the Apes franchise or Guns of Navarone and things like that. But today, we're doing the official deep dive from stem to stern, tackling everything, because he has this massive career covering every kind of conceivable genre. So, Mr. Amara, I, I could not be more excited to tackle this subject with you. And Likewise, yeah, good to be back, you know. Um, yeah, something about J.D. Thompson, you know, he's not like a household name or anything like that, but, and most people have seen his, some of his films at least, you know. But, I think a um, lot of people yeah. have seen his movies and they don't even know who he is. Exactly, you know, and especially that, you know, he's, he's made some really major classic films like Cape Fear and Guns and Navarone and stuff, and uh, still people, he, he wouldn't be on the tip of most people's tongues. You or know, if you so. saw any Charles Bronson movie from the late 70s through the late 80s, there's a very good chance that J. Lee Thompson directed it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I was having a conversation with a friend a good while ago now, about maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and we were talking about, like, our... Um, our uh, you know our, the years where you were developing as a as a as a film watcher like for me like it was the 80s i was like aged 8 to 18 from 1980 to, to 1990 and we were talking about like who, who did you see most in in that period you know and of course i was thinking it must be either spielberg or, or hitchcock or or possibly coppola or something like that you know but it turned out it was jd thompson you know and um, I mean, and, and I, I kind of did a rough count there, and I, I've seen thirteen of his films. I would have seen in the eighties. You know? Wow! Now, now that's that, that's 
not all films that he made in the 80s, obviously. It's films that he made going back from the, the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, but 13 of his films I saw in the 80s, you know, so um, he, and I didn't even know it, you know what I mean? I wasn't aware that it was, it was only just in, in hindsight, thinking back about it, that I, I said, shit, because he made the Planet of the Apes movies, he made all those Bronson flicks, like he made nine flicks with Bronson, I've probably seen about five or six of them, you know, and then Cape Fear, Ice Cold and Alex, McKenna's Gold, Guns of Navarone, uh, you know all those films that I'd seen uh, during during that period in the eighties, you know, and uh, so yeah, so I, I I I do love his films, I have to say, and you know, obviously his career had its ups and downs, and, and he'd uh, be the first to admit it. I mean, he oh, he said he was a very self-deprecating guy, and he had this one comment where he said, um, "I have certain regrets now." And this is from nineteen ninety two. Yeah. I would have rather stuck to making films like Yield to the Night, which had some integrity and importance, but the British film industry caved in. I shouldn't denigrate myself too much because I've enjoyed making my films, and I suppose I sort of sold out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I seen another quote where he advised uh, filmmakers of today to if if you're going to make a film, don't make it for the sake of making a film. Make it because you want to. It's something that you want to make, you know, which is so true, you know. But uh, yeah, so and that's it, you know. And obviously, you know, in in later years, the quality of his work declined. But I think there's reasons for that. Um, but you can make a case that he was making cool stuff from the '50s through the late '80s, which is a hell of a long run, and not a lot of director. I mean, if you're lucky, you might make one good movie in your life, and that already puts you in the elite that you've made a good movie because it's so hard to do. If you yeah. have like a good five, ten year run, then you're like in that the rarest uh, like murderer's row of the elite of the elite. But if you're able to stick around for a while and make movies that people love across multiple decades. I'm sorry, I mean, that, that puts you in a very special category. Even if he never made a movie as profound as Persona, he made yeah. movies that people love. And he had another line about art house versus entertainment, which I, which I liked, where he said, primarily I'm in the business to entertain. This does not mean that I never want to try artistic movies again, but I do not think you can sell art on the big movie circuits. Art belongs in the art houses, which it sounds kind of condescending and dismissive, but I think he was saying this uh, in 1961, right around the time where he was making The Guns of Navarone, which was yeah. one of the most expensive movies ever made and a giant runaway smash success. success so. And a film that he wasn't even intended to direct. You yeah, know it's a McKendrick I mean? like, movie. Sweet Smell Success Director, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, he, he, he was... On several occasions, I think like maybe three or four films, he was brought in as a replacement director, either because the director got fired or was sick or quit. You know what I mean? So he was yeah. kind of a, the go-to guy to to pull together a falling apart film or whatever. You know? So yeah, that, yeah. that happened on a bunch. And there are movies that he was supposed to do, like the first Planet of the Apes, which he ended up not doing, but then he circled back for the fourth and the yeah. fifth. But I know, like with um. Not only Guns in Avron, but also I the Devil. He came in and filled in for another director. And so he just he was a working director. And there's absolutely yeah. nothing to hang your head in shame about by being it's a good layman director who occasionally makes a movie that people continue to watch for many decades to come. But before we get too deep into the weeds on his career, do you have any updates from the the down and dirty world of uh, lockdown in Dublin? Because I feel like everybody in the world is handling lockdowns to one degree or another in their own way. But I'm sure people might be curious to hear what does a screenwriter and a movie freak do in Dublin when there's nothing to do? Yeah, I mean, we were just chatting about it. I was just saying, like, um, I'm in Dublin now. We were locked. We've we're in our lockdown number three. Which was which came very quickly after lockdown number two. That they basically just reopened up for Christmas, and then now we're 
they we were locked down supposedly till the 5th of March and it's now been extended to May and possibly June, you know? That's when people start wrapping their lips around the end of a revolver and like, fuck it! Yeah, I can't take it! it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, locked, I don't know what lockdown means in, in New York City or wherever else, but in Dublin it means there's no pubs open, there's no coffee shops open, there's no swimming pools, gyms, you can't go to, you, you can't go to the cinema. Um, there's literally nothing, nothing open, you know? You, you can get takeout food and and that's it but that's about it um and as like i i i uh you know i've been trying to write films and and i i have a friend that i met on the course that i done uh, done a master's there last year and uh we've been planning to collaborate so but we we nowhere to go you know so we meet up once a week and we walk around dublin in the freezing rain or cold uh brainstorming ideas and putting stuff back and forth between each other you know but um we haven't that, had the opportunity to um to sit down and actually get our heads together because uh there's also a, a five mile limit you know your, your five kilometer limit you can't be five kilometers further from your house oh you know, that's bizarre that's like and, true and you, lockdown yeah and if you get stopped and you you're, you're five miles beyond where you live unless you have a very good reason there's major fines you know like uh, huge fines so because so, uh, so like, i've been able to go to like florida and delaware and north carolina virginia and do a, a, a little bit of traveling here and there over the last year but if i had to be confined to a certain radius in new york i mean that would make me very angry and yeah. this is what makes it very difficult you know and, and now just just since last week they've put a ban on traveling anywhere so because a lot of people are going on holidays to countries that are still open and not locked down but if if, if you're caught on the way you're going to get fined two thousand euros per person and they, can also, and they can also catch you on the way back because it, it, it was 500 pounds or 500 euros per person and a fine, and uh, people were kind of well. I paid the five hundred, you know what I mean. But now they brought it up to two thousand. That's real so money, be, yeah. So for a couple, it'll be four thousand on the way, fine if you're caught, and four thousand on the way back if you're caught, you know. And plus a jail sentence if you don't pay up, you know. So yeah, it's very strict, and it's it's um, it's 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 difficult, you know. I mean, um, yeah, it's difficult because you, you, as a filmmaker, I want to be out there shooting, you know. I've I've kind of spent a year. Uh, learning all the tricks of the trade and screenwriting and I want to kind of put them to use and I just can't, you know. And, uh, Have you ever thought I, about just cranking out a down and dirty, just like little pulp novel, something that's like 120 pages where you can just, almost like on a weekend, just chug a bunch of coffee and just power through? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, you know, I've seen like a lot, for a lot of creative people, um, like musicians and, and the like and poets seem to be able to do all do write and, and uh, create during the lockdown but I think for other creatives it's not so easy you know because um, that there's for some reason I've heard on this listening to like art shows various uh, writers and uh, filmmakers stuff they find it difficult to uh, to work in lockdown I, I, I find it difficult because I, I, I need that collaborative thing you know I, gotcha. I'm not just like a, I, I'm not just a person who sits on me all. I want to work with people I want to talk to the meet, meet with the actors with an, and discuss an idea and develop an idea and develop characters with other people's input into it and then kind of go back and write the screenplay and you just can't do that on, online you know it doesn't work the same way you know so well, you're welcome yeah. to come shoot the shit on Wrong Reel anytime. Like, I know we were talking about possibly doing just like a standalone movie, like like Paint Your Wagon, and then some of yeah. that shifted into yet another. Like, we were, first we we're like, let's just do a really small topic where we can just like just crank it out. And then now all of a sudden it's like, 
No, but let's talk about like 40 years of movies from this. Yeah, <laughs> this I know. That's, that's it because, I mean, for me, this, this has been wrong real. Like this is, I think it's my fourth time on it and it's all been in during the lockdown. So it's like uh, each one has been like a milestone that I've been like aiming towards as a kind of salvation, as if you're in a drowning man looking for something to hang on to for, uh, you know, a little while. So, so yeah. Um, it's, it's, well, like 99 out of 100 episodes are episodes that people have pitched to me. So I'm always open to uh, hear a pitch. Like for people out there who don't know like what the like the wrong real development process is it's real simple i know a lot of movie freaks and a lot of them say hey have you ever tackled this and the the really cool ideas or the really cool guests those are the ones that make the cut and like you know obviously i've got a finite amount of time to yeah. do the research because doing the research that's the most time consuming part between the, i mean the recording takes yeah. some time the editing takes some time but so obviously i can't commit to everything but yeah whatever the whatever episodes sound cool those are the ones that get done yeah no i have pitched this to you as a, as a kind of one episode or, or one film episode and then we'll talk about the kind of a, a nod to some of the other films of, of uh, jd thompson but it has kind of developed into that kind of again big deep dive thing you know so yeah, well i started watching his movies and i was like all right well i'll watch like a one or two from each era but then as i started watching them i realized just how many movies of his i'd never seen i was like you know what I don't know if I'll ever have a chance to talk about Jay Lee Thompson ever again. So let's just go oh. all in and watch as many as I can. So obviously there's still plenty of movies by him that I've still yet to see, but from Ice Cold and Alex from 1958 up through Kinjite Forbidden Subjects in 1989, yeah. I think I've seen a decent amount of this time. So we're going to zig and zag across yeah. many, many years of filmmaking. And anytime we hit a film of his that we particularly love, we'll slow down and do the deep dive. But let's just go back to the beginning. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And uh, what was his background prior to starting to work as a filmmaker? Yeah, I mean, J.D. Thompson, I mean, for me, I mean, when I think about him, I kind of put him in the same category as kind of Sam Peckinpah and a few of these other real roughneck directors because, you know, he he's a heavy drinker. He was a veteran of World War II um, and all that. And he has that kind of look. You could put him on a, on a kind of pirate ship with Sam Peckinpah and John Huston and he'd fit right in there, you know. <laughs> but he's not But he's not like that, you know. he, he was a, He's a heavy drinker and all that throughout his life, but he wasn't like a... a gun-toting drunk, you know what I mean, or any of that stuff. But, um, but yeah, no, he started off as a playwright. I mean, he was writing plays from from age eight and uh, the, started writing plays and then um, slowly drifted into uh, write, writing screenplays. Um, he went, As I said, he went to the war. He was a tail gunner in, in the RAF. But um, he kind of um, took a job as a director, basically, to kind of finance his writing's plays, you know? And, uh, I mean, it was a really, I think it was his first his first film, and he was, like, um, paid, like, 500 quid for writing the screenplay and 500 quid for directing. But it was while he was directing, he kind of suddenly realised, I'd actually like to be a director, you know? This, maybe this is the thing that I could do. So he, so he started directing, and, and you know, he, he was one of these, and I haven't seen any of these films, like, like yourself from ice cold and alex forward i've seen but i haven't seen the films from before that um, but it's a lot of like women in prison movies and things like yeah, that like, and like they, films they with like a great social, social consciousness yeah social realism and then the, 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 also the, what they call the kitchen sink drama you know um so so a lot of the films yes they were set in women's prisons and this kind of thing but then also there were these films of home life in uh, post-war Britain, you know what I mean? So, uh, and it, 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 I suppose in a way, 
he was the beginning of what would become the British New Wave, you know, which which was these films, the, these social realist films of the the forties and the fifties and stuff, which which kind of predated the the French New Wave in a way. And they called them kitchen sink dramas because that's what they were. They were dramas that took place, you know, husband and wife. Yeah, and their directors the like Mike Nichols, who devoted their entire career to making those kind of dramas, and some yeah. of them would be more interesting than others. But yeah, but it's a totally valid route to go, and it's funny how he almost kind of stumbled backwards and becoming this like like the michael bay of british cinema <laughs> like the yeah. late 50s and early 60s yeah but then um, but yeah so um, i mean and uh he, he quickly like very quickly became like uh, one of the most renowned british directors of the period you know and uh and then of course he had his uh success his first major success with with, with ice cold and alex and uh it kind of that brought him to the attention of, of uh the world and and the kind of the 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 movie royalty, as it were, guys like um, Gregory Peck and stuff, who uh, were uh, they, they wanted to work with him. And this this is something that you'll notice if you look at his career. Um, everybody wanted to work with him again. If if you worked yep. with him once, you wanted to work with him again. And people loved you him. Know, guys, Absolutely, all of them like. Well, I know with Bronson, he liked him because he's like, well, Michael Winter makes me do three takes. Yeah. Kaylee Thompson only makes me do two. So I was like, yeah, all right, absolutely. is that all it takes to work with Charles Bronson? <laughs> <laughs> no, but but that's it. Like you know, you know, guys like Gregory Peck done four movies. Diana Doors and um, this kind of like British Marilyn Monroe. She done about four or five films with him. David Niven done three. Anthony Quayle done four or five. Um, and Bronson done nine. You know, so everybody who worked with him wanted to work with him again because he was he was a kind of no, no nonsense, but also no, no great difficulty working with him. He wasn't he, he, as Bronson got to know understand. He wasn't going to like keep. Um, you know, make, making uh, people do take after take after take. He, he he knew what he wanted to do, and he would just do it and get on with it. So it sounds um, like also he was a ton of fun. Like when he was in it late in life, making a slasher movie called Happy Birthday to Me. People are complaining about how he's like throwing buckets of blood all over the place, almost like a big kid, like getting like blood in the lenses of the cameras and things like that. Right. And then, and then um, there's a great line by Anthony Quinn about his approach to Guns and Navarone, where he said. Um, he never read a scene until he had to shoot it and approached each shot on a whim. Yeah. And yet, the cumulative effect was astonishing. Lee Thompson made a marvelous picture, but how? Perhaps his inventiveness lay in defying convention and rejecting the accepted methods of motion picture making and establishing his own. Perhaps it was, his, it was in his very formlessness that he found the one form he could sustain and nurture, the one form that would in turn, or could in turn, sustain and nurture him. Perhaps he was just a lucky Englishman who pulled a good picture out of his ass. I was like, all right, well, that sounds like a really fun way to work if you can make it work. But he had plenty of flops, but he also bounced it out with plenty of hits. So he just stayed in business decade after decade. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and like, uh, same with like Gregory Peck. Uh, when he saw, because he was brought in after Alexander McKendrick got fired on Guns and Navarone, and um, Gregory Peck couldn't believe that this guy just came straight in with with no preparation and just kind of took the reins of this ma like multi million dollar Hollywood film and just carried carried through. They they all called him Mighty Mouse, you know. So he was like, um, so yeah, he kind of impressed people with his. And I think a lot of it was because he he was. Um, very easygoing guy as well, you know, as he, and he liked to drink, you know, but he, he, he was... Um, Sounds like they all did. I mean, Gregory Peck loved to drink brandy, and apparently he and David Niven formed this friendship because Gregory Peck could chug brandy all day and still yeah. read his lines 
perfectly. <laughs> yeah, and, and I seen like when they were trying to get Robert Mitchum to, to do Cape Fear, uh, Gregory Peck uh, and uh, Thompson, they, they, they sent him a case of bourbon. They kept, they kept pressuring him. He kept saying, no, I don't want to play this guy. I don't want to play this guy. And eventually they sent him a case of bourbon and he wrote back, I drank your bourbon. I'm drunk. Let's do it. I love it. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, so drink drink was a, ma a major thing in this time of Hollywood and in, in these kind of, all these guys, you see, most of them were um, veterans of World War Two. you know, it's like, so they all been through the, the mill and being right through it you know if you take like in Guns and Navarone like um, David Niven he'd been a commando in, in World War Two. you know uh, Anthony Quayle had been a major you yeah, know it's like a murderous um, row of veterans in a war movie and while they might be a tad long in the tooth to be playing the parts they played it works because they bring this incredible gritty realism and they know whereof they speak and like when you see some pretty boy douchebag who grew up in the suburbs trying to do a war movie you can see right through it but I think the one of the reasons that we had all these killer tough guy movies in the 50s 60s and 70s is you had guys like Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson everybody who had legitimate war experience and they just they brought something to the movies that you cannot invent with the method yeah no even now I mean like if you think about modern or like whether it's 2017 or 1917 or Dunkirk around at that, like none of those actors have, you know, battlefield experience, you know, yeah. and and there's there's something lacking, like there's there's something that you can't you can't act it out, you know, and so when you see these guys and and like the, this this era, like post post World War Two from the late 40s through to the early 70s all the main actors or most of the main actors had all got the battlefield experience and it tells and that's what makes these films classic war films you know it's not the it's nothing else i mean they, they, they and, and it's not just these guys it's also the directors you know whether, you whether, whether, whether it's john ford or uh, william wyler or, uh, or john Jason or for frank capra i mean it's just so many directors producers actors had legitimate war experience and you know, jimmy stewart of all people you know he's a, a legitimate war hero and it just it changed yeah. it changed the movie industry forever well speaking of wars let's just dive right into a movie of his i'd never seen prior to this but it's easily one of his best and as you mentioned in your dms with me it's regarded by many as the the best war film ever made in the uk so north africa the battlefield of giants the eighth army rommel's africa corps Two million men in all the ebb and flow of this epic struggle. Two million men, two million stories. This is one. It happens to be true. For God's sake, sir, you break this thing! Shut up! Temper rough. Judgment blurred by exhaustion and rattled nerves. His one determination to make Alexandria before they were killed or captured. I'm a drunk, you know that, don't you? You were trying to get us away. The next drink I have is going to be a lager. Ice cold. But Alex was a long way off. There was a whole desert between them. 600 miles of treacherous burning sand of unknown dangers. <laughs> something under my foot. This is Sister Murdoch, who got left behind when the nurses pulled out of Tobruk. Mr. Pugh, the Sergeant Major, a good man to have around in a tough spot. And Captain Vanderpoel, who catched a lift for reasons of his own. What do you keep in that pack? Gin. Want some? 
a vast empty desert suddenly filled with suspicion. A harsh and terrible land that becomes a rendezvous for two lonely people in search of tenderness. A few stolen moments despite the face of war. In a few days you'll have forgotten we ever met. I won't forget. It's no good, sir. What do you mean, no good? It's the engine. It's boiling over. It's heating. And a seized engine won't get us to Alex. So you all want to walk, do you? All right. There's the compass. Take all the food and water you want, keep on 30 degrees for two days, and I hope it keeps fine for you. Show it to me. Hurry. I'm being sucked under. Hang on, man. Pull. What is Ice Cold and Alex? Because I feel like there are people probably have never heard of this, but for me, it yeah. is the British Wages of Fear, which is going to, I know he probably would push back on that, but if you want to talk about like white knuckle tension and suspense and survival, yeah. Ice Cold and Alex is the British Wages of Fear. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is. And I know he said like, he admitted to see, having seen uh, Wages of Fear before he made it, but he said it didn't influence him. But if he saw Wages of Fear, of course it influenced him. You know, how, how could it not? You know, but um, no, I mean, for, I, I know I've, I've American friends from when I lived in America, and none of them have ever heard of Ice Cold and Alex. But I know if you talk to those uh, guys from uh, Film Eighty Nine podcast, it's all high on their list of favorite war films. Gotcha. You know, like I can guarantee that without having ever met them or or talked to them. You know, because I know um, how how much. It, and Ireland, we're, we're pretty much the same in terms of what we were uh, being fed in, in television or film terms, you know, in in, in the 70s and the 80s and stuff. But um, yeah, Ice Cold and Alex, um, I mean, it was released, it, it's just over two hours, but um, when it was released in America, it was released as a, a, a desert attack and it was cut down to 79 minutes. You oh, know? brutal. Yeah, or you like can't the, do that, yeah. So, so of course, it didn't become a classic. You know, it was it was kind of just like B movie filler for the for the main event of, of whatever they were showing and driving or whatever. You know, but um, yeah, it's just one of those classic films. Um, the performances are all stand out. The, the 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 cast again. You've got all these, uh, you, you know, John John Mills, uh, uh, Anthony Quayle, um, Harry Andrews, and uh, Sylvia Sims. You know, who and they, they is just, one the, of the, the most. Four- Angelic-looking uh, actresses oh, yeah. I've ever seen on film. She's so beautiful, like, and, and she, I mean, like, she's not well regarded or well known outside of the the, the, the British uh, cinema. You know, she, she she's or she's only really known amongst uh, the English and Irish. I would say, obviously, if, if some people might know her, but yeah, she wasn't. She didn't become world famous. You know. Well, for but, me, what I love about it, it's just two straight hours of that like can-do spirit and British resourcefulness because they have limited gas, limited resources, limited water. They've got this truck that's barely functional. And just by sheer will and determination, they force this thing inch by bloody inch across hundreds of miles of desert surrounded by Nazis and quicksand and landmines and every obstacle you can think of. Yeah. And each one of those obstacles could completely lay waste to all of them and, have them and kill them all. 
and they just will not quit. They draw upon their engineering and their knowledge of languages. And it's just like they have so many different skills that they all have to kind of pool in like areas of expertise. And then like moments of legitimate heroism where you're like, you know, you're basically trying to hold up a truck with your own back while we're replacing a, a wheel and things like that. And also what makes it really interesting is that within the group, and this is going to be, I guess, a vague spoiler alert, but it's, fuck it, it's a 63-year-old it, movie. Very early, yeah, yes. you've got a uh, a Nazi who's a spy in hiding with them who shows more resourcefulness and heroism than any of them, and they form a rapport or a friendship or a bond by the end. And in today's you know highly polarized, divisive political climate, you know no one wants to ever concede that perhaps the people that you despise are capable of heroism and bravery and resourcefulness as well. And I just found that to be a very illuminating approach to the story. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's something that you'll notice straight away, that it, it, it's, it's very low on jingoism. You know, there, there's none of this jingoistic uh, stuff that you saw in all these war films um, throughout the Second World War and, and, and afterwards. Um, and I read somewhere that the part of the reason part of the reason was that um, you know it was the Cold War and uh, they didn't want to be they wanted to be kind of making friends with the Germans then so they didn't want to have these kind of really um, bad Nazis you know to, in inverted commas but then um, you know it, it, it but it also in, in in the Second World War out of all the theaters of the war it, it, the Western Desert um, was was the, the one area or the one part of the war where they still kind of fought in gentlemanly with gentlemen's rules, you know, the 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 the, the Germans and and the British um, and 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 the Australian the Anzac uh, the Australian New Zealanders, um, you know, they 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 respected each other and and they they you know they they switch off for tea and at, at certain times and, and and you know and not um, bomb each other by by consent mutual consent you know if they th- th- there was no like torture of prisoners or there was none of this um you know they respected guys they they, they took prisoners and and they, they uh, it was one of those um, places where, where it was allowed to happen and people people only really know this you know they, they know um field marshal rommel and uh, el alamein and, and stuff like that but um that's what I like about this film. It's it, it's shot on location in North Africa. It's it's not shot. Granted, it's not shot in, in Egypt, but it's it's shot in Libya. Um, but so it's it's very authentic. Um, in, in its look and um, and I know a lot of the time that there, there, there is a, a set musical soundtrack to it, but a lot of the time it's the, the noise of the desert, you know, the wind and the sand blowing. That's the soundtrack, and it, it really kind of um, heaps atmosphere on on the film, you know. Well, I just loved all the filmmaking technique. I mean, this is a movie where J. Lee Thompson's really showing off just a full understanding of the nuts and bolts and the grammar of filmmaking where like extreme close-ups of landmines as the truck's going by and you see the wheel coming within like a millimeter of setting it off. We see it. The actors don't see it. And you're like, oh, oh. Yeah. Like, you oh, know, yeah. It's very good. You're constantly I mean, exhaling like, with in relief. The screen, in the screenplay, the, uh, it was just truck traverses landmine fields or truck, truck traverses minefield that was it you know and thompson turned it into this like a uh, really tense like 10 minute segment you know it's uh, and it's fantastic yeah it is it's like it is like it's nail biting stuff you know and uh, and then it's kind of a it gives a kind of bit of light relief at the end of it you know but, well um, that's what's so amazing about the end is that first and foremost how did Carlsberg ever have like the the foresight to essentially agree to what will become like the coolest beer commercial for ice cold lager ever conceived by a human being? Where after two hours of unimaginable suffering and thirst on a desert, you end with the four characters sitting down to have a couple cold pints, and 
even if you don't like to drink, you're going to salivate and drool watching them drink like the most yeah. delicious looking beer in movie history. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was. I mean, it, it, they, they took this um, this last segment or this last scene and it was it was an ad that ran throughout the 80s and the early 90s in, in both Ireland and, and the UK. And, and it's, so that obviously kept the kept the popularity of the movie going as well here but um yeah absolutely it's a it's it's an iconic scene you know and well, uh, the actors apparently got paid more for the commercial than they did for the flick they're like all right they, yeah go to it like we, yeah, we, we don't all mind. four of them yeah all four of them that they, they made more money than they did ever for the for the film but uh yeah so it, it, it's a it, it's a classic that that scene but getting back to the, to the movie itself you know it, it, it's um yeah it, it has these these elements of you know it comes a few years after wages of fear and uh it, it has some such tense moments in it like the, the, there's the scene um obviously the first we, we talked about the mine about the minefield but also later on when they un, un, when they kind of make the spy they, they trap the spy who's trying to um anthony quayle who's trying to make radio and they're in the middle of this and um, the, the quatara depression which is a big basically salt covered sludge with, with it's like it's all oh, it gave me a salt. panic attack i can i've always had a, since i was a little kid a, a total paranoia about quicksand yeah. and that scene was really getting to me yeah no absolutely because for me that's the one i mean i might have seen in a few uh whether it's the six million dollar man or a few uh, tv shows from the time the incredible hulk or something somebody ends up in quicksand you know but this one was the re- was the quicksand film you know and it's it's uh, it's it's ter- it's terrifyingly well done you know it's it's it's, it's so good and apparently it was it, it was one of the only scenes that they actually shot back in a studio in the uk in this like freezing cold studio with freezing cold water and uh, anthony quayle and uh, john mills had a terrible time trying just doing that scene over and over again you know but um, it, it's it, it, it's so good. It looks so real, and it's 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 a, a major component in the movie. And and then later on, again, you, you think like you, how can they top that? And then it comes to this um, scene where they're almost there, but they have this huge sand dune to traverse, and uh, it's such a you know intense scene and very. When they were shooting, there was like all kinds of issues with the. Uh, Sylvia Sims was nearly killed, you know. At one point, the the, the truck when it, when it rolls back, it's all caught on in the film. You see it; the, she just jumps out of the way. But I mean, that actually happened. It wasn't like uh, there was nothing holding. It wasn't going. Be yeah, it's like back. you have warring impulses. Like, oh my god, we almost just killed our beautiful actress. But did we get the shot? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then there's another scene in that same, or another uh, scene in that same bit where um, she falls on the sand, and John Mill picks her up and throws her at the, the, the truck to push it. And she, can, you can see, she just smacks her head right into the side of the van, like, and uh, she really did, but she kept going. But uh, I think that the all the actors they eventually had to gang up on J.D. Thompson to say, "Hey, man, you know, this is, uh, this we're, is... we're actors here." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we 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 are thespians. It sounds like a completely <laughs> miserable shoot. I, I was reading one little detail. They said that the flies in the area were so bad on location that uh, they had to spray down the cast with DDT, which is chemicals now banned. But it's like, <laughs> I'm not into flies, bugs, yeah, I, mosquitoes at all. I'm, I'm a total city boy. I grew up in kind of much more humid terrain. And like, you know, in the summer, we would just be infested with bugs. And I, I've, you know, in my adult life, I've chosen to live in cities where bugs are not a problem. And so, yeah, but that just sounds utterly vile and you can see yeah, in some you, of the shots in the movie you can see thousands of flies hovering around them and you see the flies on their faces going into their mouths and all like they're, oh, they're, so they're being attacked so so and so again that brings the 
the realism to the film. You know, that it really adds to it because if, if this film had been shot in like a, a, a desert in California or in some other place, like you know, it just wouldn't have the the same uh, grittiness and realism that that you, that you see. So and you know, when when you see the sweat rolling off them, they haven't just been sprayed by one of the uh, makeup people with water. You know, they're, they're they're sweating their ass out in the middle of the Libyan desert. You know, well, I'm so. glad they suffered for all of our sakes because the it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking, and I always love it. Like most film historians or fans or whatever always feel like they know everything there is to know about movies and nothing could be further from the truth because the more you learn the more yeah. you realize that you're always giant blind spots and gaps and Ice Cold and Alex was just one of those gaps for me and I, I almost kind of watched it just by accident because we hadn't really placed a huge emphasis on it in our DMs talking about the episode but I was like you know what yeah. I just see one of his movies from the 50s what's available on Amazon and this one was available and I just kind of stumbled into it but I just love at the end how on one hand like the war's back on with, with the Anthony Quayle character, and they recognize that he is a German spy. We're going to allow him to be arrested. However, they kind of put the MP in his place who's come to get him, and when they see that uh, he's got still got his dog tags on, they're going to reveal his actual like true name. They very quickly reach forward and kind of cover for him. So it's like yeah. they recognize, all right, he is the enemy. We're going to lock him up, but we don't want him lined up against a wall and just having his brains blown out here and there and so I feel like we live in an era where people bind in narratives but they don't really care about detail or nuance or history yeah. for people who actually care about those things Ice Cold and Alex is a fascinating movie about World War II that feels very authentic and genuine and yeah I was just totally blown away by it yeah I mean like as I said it I would put this up there and I would I would put put my foot out there and say um this is probably uh the best British war film only maybe surpassed by uh, the bridge on the river Kwai, you know, uh, but those two, those two um, kind of are, are up there as the best of the British war films. Cause I was on, I was on a set that I was producing the film last year. And I overheard a conversation between the, uh, the sound guy and the first AD and they were talking about um, uh, 1917 and imagine this is the best British war film ever. And I was like, really? I'm like, what? Wait, I mean, I really you know, liked 1917, yeah. but it's no Bridge on the River Kwai. What's funny about no, 1917, I, my five-year-old niece, Baby Janie, for whatever reason, loves 1917 and has watched it many, many times. And I was asking uh, my sister, I was like, Janie's watching 1917? And my sister, all she said was, well, it's so easy to follow. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still not getting over the hump of a five-year-old girl riveted Absolutely. by this movie, and especially when her older sister can't watch anything more, t any more tense and tense than like her series of books that she loves, Magic Puppy. But I just find it so hysterical. These two little girls that are so close in age, one of which can't watch anything remotely suspenseful or exciting, and the other's like, "Fuck it, let's watch 1917 again." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I know, like. I suppose filmmaker or film goers of today of these like the younger like in their twenties and stuff, you know, they haven't seen all these films because I was like when when they, when I heard this like nineteen seventeen the best the best war film ever I'm like, well have you ever seen Where Eagles Dare Have you ever seen Dirty Dozen You know they they never seen any of them You know so I was like well get, get yourself out there. Well, that's so I always encourage people to say my favorite that I have seen and then you yeah. can't you can't go wrong but if when yeah. the moment people start saying oh this is the best this of whatever well then there's always going to be someone who can say all right well have you seen such and such and so yeah anytime I'm talking about favorite westerns or favorite whatever I always just say yeah my favorite that I've seen and then yeah. you really can't put your foot in your mouth 
yeah, I mean, you have films like, say, Dunkirk and 1917. I mean, they're, they're great spectacles and they're great to see on the big screen. And it's a, it's a, it's a movie going experience to set. But they, they, they're lacking something of what these films are lacking or what these earlier war films are lacking, which is obviously what we were talking about. The actors having been through it and also um, the the filming on location in these extreme conditions and stuff like that you know so um yeah i mean that's uh, but anyway ice cold and alex i would recommend to anybody if you haven't seen it and you want to have like a trillion two hours put it on your list and you make know? sure you got a couple cool refreshing uh ice beers in Burns. your fridge <laughs> ready to go for when you get to the end because if you don't have any beer on hand you're gonna be rushing right up to the store because it's like i said beer has never appeared more delicious in history than yeah. in like those five minutes at the end of the movie yeah, yeah, absolutely. Greece and the islands of the Aegean Sea have given birth to many myths and legends of war and adventure. And these once proud stones, these ruined and shattered temples, bear witness to the civilization that flourished and then died here. and of the demigods and heroes who inspired those legends on this sea and these islands. But though the stage is the same, ours is a legend of our own times, and its heroes are not demigods, but ordinary people. In 1943, so the story goes, 2,000 British soldiers lay marooned on the tiny island of Keros, exhausted and helpless. They had exactly one week to live, for in Berlin, the Axis High Command had determined on a show of strength in the Aegean Sea to bully neutral Turkey into coming into the war on their side. The scene of that demonstration was to be Keros, itself of no military value, but only a few miles off the coast of Turkey. The cream of the German war machine, rested and ready, was to spearhead the attack. And the men on Keros were doomed unless they could be evacuated before the Blitz. But the only passage to and from Keros was guarded and blocked by two great, newly designed, radar-controlled guns on the nearby island of Navarone. Guns too powerful and accurate for any Allied ship then in the Aegean to challenge. Allied intelligence learned of the projected blitz only one week before the appointed date. What took place in the next six days became the legend of Navarro. push on to one of the big dogs guns of navarone which i've had a ch i've luckily i've had a chance to kind of speak my piece on uh, wrong reel 485 so i'm going to make this the the robert omara uh kind of section because i've already had a chance to interrupt my guests and talk over them and say everything that i wanted to say with uh with steven simpson so you tell me what are what are the ingredients in guns of navarone that really jump out of you because obviously 
it is the quintessential kind of bunch of guys on a mission movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, again, like it, it's one that I've seen repeatedly since I was old enough to watch films. You know, my father would have been watching it and I would have been watching it with with my family. And then, of course, as I get a bit older, I've been watching it myself and stuff like that. And um, well, I mean, obviously, it's it's got one of the best the best casts out there in in, uh, in film. If you want a man on a mission film, Gregory Peck, uh, David Niven, Anthony Quinn, Anthony Quayle, Stanley Baker, J- James Darren, and uh, Richard Harris. You know, so it's um it's definitely one of those um brilliant uh, castings because most of them had um uh, wartime experience and. Uh, Obviously, they, they all seem to get on very well together, which uh, which they weren't sure at the beginning. There was, um, it, it, but they seemed to. They basically spent the whole movie playing chess and uh, bonding through playing chess and and uh, drinking, you know. But um, yeah, no, it's you know, it's 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 got like a good pedigree. Um, obviously, it's coming from uh, um, Alistair McLean or uh, Alistair McLean. Uh, wrote the book uh, who wrote Where Eagles There amongst many other ice stations ever or whatever else and you got but, screenwriter you know, Carl Foreman who well, wrote yeah. Bridge on the River Choir which we, we, River, which we were exactly. just discussing and Young Winston and High Noon and so anytime uh, you've got yeah. all these great writers or all this great material there's a good chance you're on the right track yeah absolutely I mean this this thing because it, again if we, we might kind of dip into uh, McKenna's gold, which is kind of on paper looks almost the same as Guns and Averone in but terms of very different of, uh, in tone, yeah. But a very, <laughs> you know, but um, but yeah, everything everything in this film works, you know, and and uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, again, I mean, I I, I listened to your Men on the Mission episode, you know, so um, I know there's not much new I can bring to it. In oh, terms but of, I mean, but it's one of those movies that that's so much goddamn fun to watch. Like, I, I don't yeah. mind singing its praises a second time because in a lot of ways, one of the movies that defines this subgenre, I mean, some will say Dirty Dozen, but it's a, a genre that I never get tired of. And it's a genre that kind of doesn't really get utilized that frequently now. But in the 60s and 70s was absolutely in vogue where I just love watching a team getting assembled where everybody's got a specialty where they oh, this person's good with knives. This person's good with explosives. And these two guys, they're really good at climbing cliffs. And that's the premise is great. You've got this like supervillain base that is totally impregnable. And the only way you're going to be able to defeat it is by having people climb up to gain access because you cannot attack it from sea or air in a way that actually would be effective. And so this is like the ultimate G.I. Joe movie before G.I. Joe even existed. And the playset for the Guns of Navarone formed the foundation for like later playsets like Castle Grayskull and, and, and yeah, all this yeah, stuff. Sure, I mean it's, it's almost James Bondian in in, in terms 100%. of the, the, the it, layer. It, we are one step away <laughs> from drifting into like superhero James Bond territory. Yeah, absolutely, and I suppose it's inspired from from um, during the D Day landings. One of the uh, one of the I think I'm not sure if it was the um, I know it was the U.S. Army. That one of the places they had to go was I think it was called Ill the Point or something like that. They had to climb and scale these rocks to to get to these guns that were on the top, you know, and and, and many of them died. It was, it was a major part of the D Day landings and uh, many many american uh, guys died uh, uh, but and when they got up to the top there was no guns there you know so it, it but but they, it still had to it still had to be done the guns hadn't been put into place but i suppose that's where um alistair mclean got the uh, the idea for it but but also this film you know you know you know you, you hear about all these um uh, reenactors, these guys who like to dress up as uh, in German uniforms and uh, kind of do battle scenes and stuff uh, like dude, that. I Most grew up in the South in the United States. 
Civil War battle reenactments are a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but over here in Europe, it, it, it's um, World War II, uh, and a lot of people, and there's loads of guys who dress up in Nazi gear. And I think it's it, it's it's not because they want to be Nazis; it's because they're all rared on movies like Guns of Navarone or Regal's There, yeah, where the actors buffs. all yeah. got to to dress up in the as uh, going undercover as Nazis. So it's like it's this kind of thrill of uh, going under, putting on the the enemy's clothing and stuff like that, you know. But uh, again, it, it's got the story. They, they've got a spy in the midst, and they, they don't know who it is, and every every time they try to do something it goes wrong and they don't they slowly realize that because somebody's telling what's going on what also i love about this in spite of it having the appearance of just being a great fun adventure movie there's a ruthlessness at the core of it that is often missing from these movies where just the idea of knowing that your job is to send good men to certain death or little tricks like when gregory peck feeds misinformation to somebody who he knows is going to be tortured yeah. And he knows this is a way where not only is he losing a good man, he's going to feed misinformation to the Germans. I mean, that takes a certain level of ruthlessness that you wouldn't often see in the heroes of a more conventional adventure film. And so I think sometimes people mistakenly assume that this is a movie like Kelly's Heroes, which is much more fun. Yeah. There's, a, there's a darkness in Guns of Navarone that I feel like only comes from people who've really been in the trenches so to speak yeah i, I mean and, and gregory peck you know he he is the one that gives the the really hard tough speech at the end just before the very end to david niven when they when they when the, they've uncovered the girl as a spy because previously they wanted to like him um, when, when uh, i think it's anthony quinn breaks his leg um they want to just they want to like let him be captured by the Germans, so he's given medical attention, Gregory Peck wants him dead, you know, they, they, they kind of compromise and stuff, and he gives it, but then later it comes to the, the they uncover the spy, spoiler alert, it's it's, it's the girl who, who'd been tortured by the Nazis, you know, and, um, you know, she has to be killed, you know, and, and, and this is something that was... Uh, in those kind of theaters of Eastern Europe, um, the Balkans, Greece, uh, and France and stuff, that w w when there was like, um, you know, commando style stuff going on, or when there was uh, uh, dealing with the resistance, they were ruthless because they had to be, because if, if they weren't, they'd be, they'd be wiped out and where, you know, so um, even your best friend or whoever it was, if they betrayed you, there was no um, second chance, you know, so, uh, and it comes across in this film, you know. Well, so one of the biggest fans of this movie was Sir Winston Winston Churchill himself, who I believe actually was in, like, you know, I mean, I know for a fact he was actually in the trenches in World War One. No, he wasn't. No, he was in, in the trenches in the Boer War. Well, no, but, in, well, yeah, he fought in the Boer in War. South Africa. In, in the First World War, he was Lord of the Admiralty. But when he got uh, demoted. Oh, yeah, maybe he did. Toward the end of World War One, because yes, he got demoted after right. the, um, what was it called? The, like the Dardanelles, where he had his Dardanelles, big, Dardanelles. Yeah, he had his um, big public disgrace and uh, defeat. And so he actually did finished the rest of World War One in the trenches there as well. So but I don't know yeah. he had he participated in the last cavalry charge in Egypt. So maybe he had three different wars. At any rate, my point is he had so much war experience and obviously yeah. was Prime Minister during World War Two, but he was a massive fan of this movie. So much so he approached Carl Foreman about making a movie of his autobiography, My Early Life, and uh that which eventually would become Young Winston, which was sadly made after Winston Churchill's death, but Young Winston, very cool flick as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I've I, I've uh, I've seen it like good many years ago, but yeah, absolutely, because he had a, a very. Uh, he, I think you know, I think he was even. He managed to escape. Uh, I think he, he managed to escape as a POW. That's during what made the, him uh, famous. Boer his, war, his, yeah, yeah, during the Boer War, his escape. 
and people following his escape in the press made gave him instant celebrity and they do yeah. the deep dive on that during young winston which i saw for the first time when i was 18 and i've not revisited it since i think now there's been 25 years since i've seen young winston because since young winston i've read uh the two books by um Oh, what's his name? Um, William Manchester, parts one and two, which was one of the best history books or set of history books I've ever read. So I think I'm long overdue in revisiting Young Winston. Yeah, I, likewise. I mean, I, I probably saw it back when it came out. So it's, you know, a good 20, 30, 30 years ago at least, you know. But, um, and yeah, there's been many adaptations of Churchill, most recently with um, yeah, Gary Oldman. Uh, Gary Oldman, you know. So yeah, that was, I, I really enjoyed that, you know. Yeah, everybody but, else um, focuses on World War II. The guy had a fascinating life going back to when he was an, a, a little boy. And, you know, like we we still have copies of letters that exist where the ink is blotted and stained from his tears dropping down on the page because he's begging his parents to come visit him. His parents were off partying and, and yeah. you know, hanging out with, like, you know, kind of a fast-moving crowd. And he had kind of a sad, pitiful childhood in a lot of ways. Anyway, I find his entire life story fascinating. And also one of those rare politicians who was willing to cross the aisles, and he did so on two occasions. And I think everybody's so loyal to their team these days. I, I actually am more impressed by a uh, somebody who's got principles who's willing to shift as the political landscape changes. Yeah, well, um, in Ireland, we, we don't have too fond uh, an, uh, an opinion of Churchill. I mean, I'm a bit different, I suppose, but because uh, I'm a history buff, but um, he's still kind of held responsible for um, the segregation of the the split from with the north of Ireland from the south. Like, so that he he's responsible for that, you know. He, and that took place early twenties when they when they actually yes yeah, twenty one. Yeah, 1920-21. Um, the idea was that they would give the Republic or they would give Ireland the, the 26 counties and the, the six counties of the north would follow. But they never did follow, you know. And uh, so, yeah. In but anyway. 90, but yeah, 95, I was studying over in, uh, in England. And I remember a teacher at the time, I mean, we were constantly talking about contemporary British politics and that sort of thing. But the way he described Northern Ireland at the time, he said, you know what? I think secretly both Ireland and... And Britain just wish just wish Northern Ireland would float away into the sea. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Because look, look at the moment, there's a lot of um, tr not trouble, but there's it's a big issue to North at the moment because of Brexit. Because um, there are there the border Northern between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland is the border between the EU and the, and the UK. You know, yeah. and because we've had the the troubles and we're, we we have the Good Friday peace agreement. Is Ireland um, still EU? Whereas obviously Northern Ireland is part of Brexit. Yeah. Yeah, but, but part of the peace agreement was that there was no border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland because before, when I was growing up, there was military checkpoints like Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. You know, you were had guys pointing guns at you as you were trying to cross the border, but that's all gone with the peace process. But now with uh, Brexit, um, it, it would have meant putting borders up again, which would have become targets for dissenting Republicans or or uh, loyalist paramilitaries or whatever. But um, they, they made this agreement to try and stop having a border there. So they've kind of left Northern Ireland slightly out of the UK and it's causing all kinds of trouble. You know, it's, it, it's trouble. You know, yeah, basically it's been a hundred years since uh, Northern Ireland became a thing and they're yeah. still, they're still working. They're still working. Oh, on it's, it. Yeah, absolutely. But, <laughs> Work but anyway, in progress, so to speak. Yeah. We digress. Let's, we uh, we digress. Suspense, suspense that grips your heart in a vice. Feel fear, 
numbing, paralyzing fear. Cape Fear, starring Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum, Polly Bergen. Cape Fear, the screen's most terrifying war of nerves. Oh, I've seen the worst, the dregs, but you, you are the lowest. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm going to break your heart with it. I got a little plan for your wife and kids. They're never going to forget. Never. operator to call the sheriff's office. Send some men out here fast! Cape Fear, the nightmare that becomes a shocking reality. Oh, now, come on. If you touch me, you'll go back to prison for life. You want to make a little bet on that? But you will. I'm not like Nancy. I'm not afraid to testify. I swear it. You've got to believe me. I'm not afraid. <laughs> Let's move on to one of J. Lee Thompson's most famous movies, Cape Fear from 1962, which was famously remade roughly 30 years later by Martin Scorsese using a lot of the same cast who appeared in the original. But there's no getting around the fact that this is one of those movies with like one of the all-time great horror thriller scores by the great Bernard Herrmann and his stars, as you mentioned before, Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. And for me, I think this is two-thirds of a masterpiece. Where it loses me is with the conventional kind of action and confrontation toward the end, but where it gets me is with all the character interactions between Peck and Mitchum, Mitchum who are just doing some of the best work of their careers. So what are your, what are your feelings about Cape Yeah, Fear? I mean, I had, I had seen this before the Scorsese remake, so um, I, was, I was aware of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those uh, really great films, like with, like Peck, I think he was producing it, so he he, he wanted t Thompson to, to direct it. And um, after the experience on Guns of Navarone, when Thompson came in, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's uh, I suppose it's his first kind of American movie that's set in America. Even though Navarone is is thought of it as his first American blockbuster film, but um, Cape Fear, yeah, um, no, I, I like I watched it, I watched rewatched it there last week, and. Um, yeah, I mean it's it still holds up, you know. It's 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 still, um, you know, it's timeless in, in, in its way. I mean, there's obviously there's a few kind of hokey scenes towards the end, and some of some of it is a bit uh, uh, stage looking. But yeah, all the cast is great, you know. The the, the the actress playing the young girl is is, is just as, it's just as good as the Juliette Lewis part in, in the in the remake, you know. And it's just as creepy. He's just as creepy, like. Uh, Bob Mitchum and uh, Robert De Niro, you know, uh, who, who does uh, what's it? Is it Jake Cady or Katie, whatever? Yeah. Or Max Cady, um, you know, the best. I mean, obviously, De Niro's able to do a little bit more 
because they, they 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 did edit some of the stuff out. You know, they did they did they did make cuts. They defanged and declawed the book a bit because they didn't want to suggest that a U.S. serviceman could possibly ravish and or rape a girl. But and or the, ra- rape and murder the daughter. Yeah, the whereas in the daughter. Scorsese <laughs> flick, they make it much more explicit. I mean, he friggin' bites the chunk out of a girl's face at one point. They, by the yeah. time you get to the '90s, they could go all in. But I do think Robert Mitchum does a brilliant job of suggesting just how dangerous and oh, yeah. evil he truly is. I, I mean, yeah, he, he, he's uh, very, very close to it, it's kind of, it kind of parallels his performance in um, the one where he's the preacher with the, hey, with Night, the, of the, Hunter. Yeah. the Night of the Hunter. You know, it, it, it's uh, th- those two are, are his two creepiest performances. Yeah, he's and, and as we were saying earlier, he didn't he didn't want to do it, you know, because uh, I think it's just been enough for him. And he just uh, but he was kind of bribed through alcohol to, to get back to do it, you know. But yeah, I mean, um, Mitchum was one of the all time great just kind of roughneck, drunkard, stoner party boys who happened also to have insane talent as yeah, an actor. I, I mean, because one of the scenes they were, they were supposed to shoot was in a certain town in the South, and he didn't want to go there because Savannah. it turned out he'd been on a chain gang there yeah, back Savannah. in the day, you know, so they had to shoot that scene back in California, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was a, he was the real bad boy, you know. He was the bad boy before bad boys. Uh, he he gotten busted for weed and stuff like that. And it's one of the all-time great Hollywood pics of him in a suit walking out of jail like he owns the place <laughs> with his arms kind of splayed out, and he looks like he looks happy as can be. I mean, he's getting out of jail, so why, why shouldn't he be? But... Yeah, Mitchum, he's a larger than life figure, to put it, to put it mildly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, for me, you know, my movie going life, he's he expanded from his early films right through to his, his later films, you know, good and bad, like whether, whether it's, um, you know, Friends of Eddie Coyle or or the really bad Michael Winner uh, Chandelier version or Chandelier film, you know. But um, yeah, you know, he 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 was a bad boy, and he, and uh, but he was also a great actor, and he proves it in this, you know. So um, yeah, I mean, I think most people have, or not most people, but a lot of people have seen the the remake, you know, and I do I do think it's worth going back to to have a look at this film because um, you, you know it's it, it it's all there, you know, it's it, it, it's scary, it's creepy, and uh, you, you know there are there are some pretty good uh, climatic well, scenes. As someone who spent a large chunk of their childhood living in North Carolina, in particular, going in the summer down to Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the region where it's set. Yeah. For us, this is a movie of enormous you know, fame and importance because yeah. Cape Fear, I mean, the movie is, I mean, the book's called The Executioners, but Gregory Peck just looked at a map of North Carolina. I was like, well, let's just call it Cape Fear. That sounds great because Cape Fear is it's a real river. It's, it's a real, real place. place. Yeah, and right. it's, got, it's such a, a great name. And it does, it's a weird thing where there's so much of English culture that is borrowed by and kind of like, kind of like changed and grown, but a lot of Southern culture owes a debt of gratitude culturally to English culture in terms of like the, the accents, the Southern accent, the English accent are different, but it's very easy for English actors to make the switch as we've seen with like, you know, Vivian Lee doing Scarlett O'Hara and things like that. And I think Jaylee Thompson kind of understood Southern culture, just like the depiction of the good old fashioned small town country lawyer who is Max Cady's guy who kind of sings all of his words. Like he's one of these classic Southern peacocks who dresses yeah. in an outlandish fashion, has a big overbearing personality. But that is a persona that you find in North Carolina and South Carolina over and over again, where they're a, you know, a big dick in a small pond and that sort of thing. And there's a lot about this movie that they get right. And I think just having Robert Mitchum in there, he brings an, authentic, an authenticity that is undeniable. And also what I like, 
this movie obviously is defanged and declawed in terms of what they can yeah. show, but it shows just how much you can infer through yes. something like him trying to pick up a waitress with a $20 bill and asking her if her ring means anything. He does it in such a sleazy fashion, even if the movie's not overtly graphic in any way. And that's what I find so fascinating about watching the movie. Yeah, I mean, and also it, it, it's it's a notable film because you get to see Telly Savalas with a full head of hair. Yeah. In it, you know? <laughs> so, so it's the only time I, I was, I was rewatching. I said, I'm like, like, well, he's got hair. Like it's it, Telly Savalas, you know. So and he's he's pretty good in it too, you know. But I think I think he had actually um he had tried to um, get the part of Katie, you yeah, know. Yeah, a good and, part. Uh, he would have been good too, I suppose, you know, because he, he kind of played that kind of in the Dirty Dozen, that kind of psycho a bit, you know. But, um, yeah, no, it's worth checking out. I think um, if you're a film buff and if you like Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese didn't make it, remake it because he felt it it, it needed to be remade. It's just a film that he loved, I think, and he just wanted, he wanted to remake it, you know? Yeah, I think there's a situation where he and Spielberg, for whatever reason, were both developing rival projects, and for whatever reason, they ended up kind of swapping them and directing them. And originally, Cape Fear was going to be made by Spielberg, but I think it was a just a straight-up director-for-hire gig, and Scorsese was hot again after Goodfellas. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with doing the occasional director for higher work as the career of Jay Lee Thompson uh, is, is proof of. But there's a, a great anecdote from behind the scenes where when Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck, when they were fighting at the end, at one point Gregory Peck accidentally punched him in the face. And they didn't break character. They kept doing, going on with the scene. But Mitchum afterwards said that he literally collapsed due to the impact <laughs> of the punch. And he said, I don't, he says, I don't feel sorry for anyone dumb enough who picks a fight with him. Like, and so <laughs> sadly, I know they had a little bit of tension after the fact because Robert Mitchum was basically claiming that uh, he had the much more interesting part and that he outacted Gregory Peck. And Gregory Peck, who's a consummate gentleman, kind of felt that was a little rude in that he got the, gave Robert Mitchum the gig. At any rate, I'm a big, big fan of both actors. And I think, uh, yeah, if you, if you like either of them, this is required viewing. Yeah, and Gregory Peck, he also had editing. Uh, he, he was involved in the edit, and uh, he, he chose to give to not cut any of Mitchum's bits, like to up, upstage Mitchum's performance with his own. So he, he really liked, you know, he, 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 he could see how good he was in it. But also, you know, um, J.D. Thompson, he, he chose to make it in black and white. He wanted to, he wanted to be like kind of Hitchcockian type film. I think he Bernard Herrmann done the soundtrack and stuff. And he wanted to get these kind of re really strange angles in it and bring all that to it. And, and so there is an element of that to it. And um, it's one of his like, best looking movies by far. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it looks fantastic, and, and obviously it's been, uh, you know, re, re, uh, polished up and uh, re-released, re, re so um, yeah, check it out, you know. Yeah, like, like I said, my only criticisms are when it gets into just, like, the fight scenes toward the end, those have dated, like, you know, Mitchum's got him in kind of a clumsy rear naked choke, and they're going underwater and then coming up, and it just, for anybody who likes watching fight scenes in movies, that stuff has an age well, but because the acting and the writing is so good, like I said, the first two-thirds... I find absolutely fascinating or like the probably the darkest scene when Max Cady is making it very plain to Gregory Peck's wife what he plans to do to her, how he's going to rape her, etc. He, he is holding nothing back as an actor. He's really just going for it. No, absolutely. And it's the kind of scene where an actor today be like, I'm not taking that part. That'll ruin my career. And Robert Mitchum just just like I said, he puts his foot all the way down on the gas. Yeah, I mean on, on the AFI's uh 
top movie villain, like 100 mo- movie villains, uh, Robert Mitchum's KD is number 28, you know? Gotcha. So it, it's, uh, he, he's up there, you know? So it's, it's definitely uh, one of his best roles, yeah. Well, there's one movie that J. Lee Thompson made. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I, didn't, I did not get a chance to see it, and I just wondered if you had any info on it. But have you heard anything good or bad about Kings of the Sun from 1963? No, Kings of the Sun. No, I haven't seen it, no. Um it seems like it's one of the ones that a lot of people have recommended, but it's just he has such a giant career. I had to kind of pick and choose because I'm in, right in the middle of preparing for too many big episodes all at once. And I was like, you know what? I just uh, I can't see everything. But Kings of the Sun, for anybody out there who's curious, it's Yul Brenner. It's uh, a movie about um, Mayans and Native Americans clashing. Anyway, it sounds right up my alley, but I have not seen it, and I will – Hopefully, maybe one day, find time to hunt it down. But another film from this period that I did see, which I'm not going to say people need to see, but it's a weird kind of cultural oddity or curiosity, is Eye of the Devil from 1966, a movie that was riddled with problems, and Kim Novak had to drop out of the movie due to a spinal injury while riding a horse. But for people who are film historians, this is the movie that introduces Sharon motherfucking Tate. And she'd done a few bit parts beforehand, but she's just an absolute angel in this. And it's a weird, it's almost like a little bit like The Wicker Man, where you've got this strange ancient pagan culture that's interacting with the modern age. But David Niven's in it and Deborah Carr, and Deborah Carr was brought in to reshoot all of the Kim Novak scenes and it's got friggin' David Hemmings in there and Donald Pleasant. So unreal cast, gorgeous black and white cinematography. The movie doesn't quite work and it's kind of all over the place, but I did enjoy having a, having a look. And also Maurice Bender, he did all the title sequences for all the Bond films. He did a title sequence for this. So yeah, it's got interesting ingredients, but it doesn't ever quite come together as a complete movie going experience. Yeah, and I think that was something of a bit of a problem with Thompson's films, like like the three films we just talked about: Ice Cold, Ice Cold and Alex, Guns and Navarone, and Cape Fear, were his kind of the high watermark of his career in a sense. Yeah. Um, three classic movies, very um, prestigious, yeah, you know, absolutely. But and from that point on. Um, things take a turn, as he said himself. You know, he 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 would just go with a script without really looking into it too much he, he didn't he, he made too many uh, errors of judgment in terms of the scripts I think at the time he just wanted to work I mean he was a as I said before he was a very heavy drinker and uh, I, he also but he wasn't a drunk you know he, he held himself together and he was able to perform and stuff like that but I think he just kind of stopped caring I think he he'd achieved <laughs> this kind of success and he was just quite happy to work and uh produce whatever came along and uh to, 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 i mean these days it, it probably wouldn't happen to be like a company like netflix would be there to kind of support him and give him the, the the funds and to be able to make the films he wants to make and stuff like that but he didn't have that the, you know there wasn't that kind of going back then and he he just basically at this point in his career he started taking any film that would come along well, i think you the know, modern day equivalent would be a really good director who's got a couple of good good films to their name but who now takes gigs on popular shows directing single episodes and there are plenty of directors who do that like wow like in the 90s and early 2000s they did a couple of cool feature films but now you see them doing you know westworld and game of thrones and like just kind of hopping from big show to big show where you never quite like oh my god like that person directed the episode holy shit and yeah. there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's so much TV being made now. They need great directors to step in and deliver. And so I think 
flash forward 30, 40, 50 years from now, people are going to look back on all these shows and they're going to be calling attention to really in interesting filmmakers who managed to thrive by hopping from, uh, from, from one set to another. And so I think if Jay Lee Thompson were alive today, that's what he would have been doing. He would have been hopping from show to show to show. And, and would have been in demand to do that. Sort yeah, of like stuff Neil Marshall. Well. Neil Marshall's in demand on things like Game of Thrones because he'll give you champagne for the price of beer and do a, give a big battle scene on a limited budget. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the thing. That's kind of the shame. Like, I, I'm, it's, it's, it's a shame that in some ways that he, he didn't have the opportunities that he should have been afforded as a, the director of uh, Guns and Navarone, Cape Fear and Ice Cold Maddox, you know, and uh, that was just the way that the industry went in those days, you know. Well, let's talk about another one of the big ones, which I'm not quite sure if this is like a fantasy adventure film or a Western or a fantasy adventure film pretending to be a Western, but we've got McKenna's Gold, 1969. Old turkey buzzer. Mother's son has got a day, a date with faith, with faith. He sees men come, he sees go, crawling like ants on the rocks below. The men who scheme, the men who dream and die for gold on the rocks below. again script by Carl Foreman and I had never seen this I thought it was going to be a down and dirty gritty western about looking for gold but by the third act it changes into quite a different movie almost like Raiders of the Lost Ark territory so yeah. for people out there who have not seen McKenna's Gold what the hell is going on here because this movie has a lot of fans but not its star Gregory Peck who said some very disparaging things about the movie saying yeah. <laughs> it was just a terrible western just wretched I don't agree with Gregory Peck but I no. don't think it's on the level of like the Wild Bunch. So yeah, so no. let's, let's get let's get into it. Yeah, I mean, look, like, like I said to you before, like on paper, this looks just about like the best film that's gonna that you're gonna 100%. see. You know, you've yeah. got Gregory Peck, Omar Sharif, Telly Savalas, uh, Julie Newmar, who was Catwoman. I you know, her. and you yeah. get you get to see her swimming naked and stuff in the film. So uh, it's got a lot going for it. Jay Lee and, and loads of guest kind of actors in it as well. Jay Lee Cobb, Burgess Meredith, Anthony Quayle, Edward G. Robinson, Eli Wallach. You know, uh, Quincy Jones does the yeah. soundtrack. You know, it's so insane. You're thinking, yeah. It, 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 it's on paper it looks fantastic but I will um I will say this before we go any further um this film was envisioned as one of these David lean epics so it was it was it was meant to it was meant to be a three-hour film with an intermission 
and and they 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 cut a, they cut an hour from the film, and it's never been restored, so, and nobody's ever seen the the three hour film except for obviously the producers. So um so we don't know is there what was there a better film to come out of this, you know? And, and don't get me wrong, because like as a kid, like I, this this would have been on television all the time when I was like growing up to age 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever. And I would have watched it several times and it was enjoyable, a romp, you know, you get, there's lots of, there's lots of like action set pieces and stuff. Yeah, and, you know, obviously you got Bat, Batwoman, or is it not Catwoman? Catwoman, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in it and stuff like that, you know, so it's, it's an enjoyable romp, but it's having not seen it for about 25, 30 years and rewatching it, you know, it, 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 as a filmmaker, then now I, I look and I say, okay, what went wrong here and how, I mean, well, I think they didn't because, know what the film was going to be. Like, is it an El Dorado kind of looking for a lost city of gold? Yeah. Maybe? Or is it, a, cause it opens up with a really kind of gritty premise. Gregor Peck stumbles upon a dying native American who gives him, uh, the information of where this gold map, may or may not be. And I was like, all right, that sucks. Like I'm in, I'm in, this is fucking cool. And it has all these strange stylistic flourishes and like, Gorgeous shots of the Grand Canyon is like visually just stunning. Well, like I, that's, that's something I was going to say because yeah. there, there are some shots in this that I've never seen in any other Western. Yeah. There's some shots that he's that uh, obviously uh, J. Lee Thompson, as an Englishman, brought a different eye to these overused. Uh, Western sets of the, the American West, you know, the, uh, the uh, whether I don't know if it's Arizona or New Mexico or wherever, or Colorado or wherever it is, but there's some scenes that look science fiction, they could have been in Planet of the Apes, you 100%. know, like there's some like the rock formations that that JD Thompson has shot for the so, so it, it does look so like amazing, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know, um. I was expecting, you know, maybe Treasure de Sierra Madre, you know, there's, there's, is, is there going to be this kind of t- tension about the gold fever kind of thing kicking in? Well, they and all just, this they go so big with the final act that you, there's nothing earlier in the movie that lets you know this pivot, stylistic switch is going to come because once they find the gold, it becomes like a mythic. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like suddenly, instead of like a conventional Western, you've got like the main characters climbing this cliff that looks like not even Gregory Peck from Guns of Navarone would be able to climb, but it's like, it's like they've been on like on the trail for weeks, having battles and battles. And suddenly they're like climbing like, like three miles straight up and then fighting at the top. And 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 being pursued by somebody else. It gets so overwhelmingly and unimaginably, over the top that it kind of, I got blindsided by just, there's nothing earlier to kind of clue you in that this is coming. I think that's what really threw me off is that suddenly we're in this strange mythic territory. Whereas earlier what I really was enjoying and I wish more movies would do this it had a willingness to just lay waste to and kill off major prominent actors without any real fanfare. It's like, as you mentioned before, the cast is unimaginable. Yeah. But throughout the movie, yeah. they just get they just get mowed down and killed, like you know, with with, with, yeah. with very little Eli, warning. Eli Wallach, you know, uh, J. Lee Cobb, Burgess Meredith, Edward G. Robinson. You know, these guys are just Legends. slaughtered without like uh, any thought given to it. You know, just as you're kind of getting into the character, they're suddenly out of there. You know, which is a great thing. You know, but again, I have to question like um, how much of the missing hour of footage might piece it might all explain together. that yeah. bridge from kind of this kind of strange almost standard western into this kind of fantasy kind of um yeah this 
total switch in the film that comes. It almost up. turns into like Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger yeah. toward the end. You're like, whoa! You're, you're finding like this strange fantasy land that's been like tucked away, like you know, exactly. un- untouched by the, time. The land that time forgot, and yeah. all, all those kind of connotations go into it as well, you know. And that, yeah. Um, so yes, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I, and I couldn't find anything else about the uh, the missing one hour of footage, you know. So. Um, I, it's hard to say, and I, it, obviously it has to ha- have something to do with why the film doesn't work a, a, as a whole. You know? Yeah, but yeah. then you got these giant like earthquakes and avalanches. I was like, did fucking like Lex Luthor suddenly enter the movie? Like, <laughs> this is like the turning so apocalyptic, and it just it gets so big that I was totally blindsided. But it's a weird thing. In today's uh, political climate, you would never see an Egyptian playing like a, a Mexican bandit, but seeing Omar Sharif. You know, this, yeah. One of the most elegant, stylish, sophisticated actors that uh, you know ever walked or crawled. Seeing him in a western, I thought it was delightful. I was like, you know, yeah. and, and you would never get away with that today. But in the context of the film, I just rolled with it. And he just, yeah. I love watching people play villains with great like relish and unapologetic delight. And he just, he just goes for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, he, he's great. And he, I mean, he does have some sort of look that you could buy into it. You know that he's he, he is this guy. You know. But um, yeah, and same with you. Have, I mean, obviously, these films will always suffer from, you know, they're casting white women as uh, Native Americans or, or Egyptians. Yeah, as Heshke. Like. We have a Julie Newmar as Heshke, great uh, anecdote from behind the scenes. She was contractually obliged to do a topless scene with a loincloth, but on the day of, she was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just, I'm, I'm getting naked. And the crew was like, all right. Let's go for let's, it. Let's, let's go for it. And, and so they just got down to it. And she had the great underground fight scene where she's trying to strangle the other girl ends up like riding her off a cliff later on. And and, and then she's wrestling, wrestling Gregory Peck naked underwater. Oh, you know? yeah. So yeah it's glorious uh, stuff. And George Lucas himself was there documenting the making of the movie. And he was making suggestions. And it's just there's so much going on. And when I mentioned earlier, had these like stylistic flourishes. Like at one point, when they find you know the lost land of Shangri La, whatever, it has this quick kind of rapid fire montage of all these still frames, and it's just you can tell J. Lee Thompson's trying to experiment quite yeah. a bit with it with this movie. Not all the experiments quite pay off, but if you get Quincy Jones to compose "Old Turkey Buzzard" as your theme song, like you know, I'll give it a listen and just and see what you what you've cooked up. Yeah, so I think the movie is worth watching for people who love westerns and adventure films or just these giant 60s extravaganzas with these crazy casts that are just, uh, you know, you can't even believe they were able to assemble them. But I can't recommend it just as like an objective movie-going experience. I think it doesn't completely come together, but I get that it has its fans. And for whatever reason, apparently in Russia, it just took off like a rocket and it became this like massive cult classic. So I'm like, all right, you know. More power and to it you. Does, you. You mentioned there, like George Lucas, like um, he he got um, I think um, J D Thompson. He got like George Lucas, uh, David McDougall, uh, David David Wiles, uh, and some other guy to to come and um, Chuck Braverman. Uh, they came and they shot the um, documentary behind the scenes. But George Lucas, he made like kind of an art house film, like an art, which is it's it's online if if you're interested. It's called Six Eighteen Sixty Seven, and it's just kind of an art house film that he shot kind of behind the scenes, very kind of um, very out there. So there's no narrative format to it. So, but it's it's curiosity if you want to look at it. You know, it's funny so. how George Lucas initially was like a wildly experimental filmmaker, and then you flash forward 30 years later, and he's making the Phantom Menace. And it's like, all right, well, yeah. I guess that's what a couple hundred million dollars in the bank will uh, will will do to a person. I guess we're a couple billion in the bank. Billion, yeah, I was going to say billion. Yeah, he yeah. sold his franchise for I think 
4.2 or 5.2 billion to, to Disney. So yeah. he, he did just fine with his career as we all know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you ready to get down and dirty and talk some planet of the apes? Caesar. Caesar. This is not how it was to be. In your view or mine. Violence prolongs hate, hate prolongs violence. By what right are you spilling blood? By the slave's right to punish his persecutors. Caesar, I, a descendant of slaves, am asking you to show humanity. But I was not born human. I know. The child of the evolved apes. Whose children shall rule the earth. For better or for worse. It could be worse. Do you think this riot will win freedom for all your kind? By tomorrow... By tomorrow it will be too late. Why, a tiny, mindless insect like the Emperor Moth can communicate with another over a distance of 80 miles. An Emperor Ape might do slightly better? Slightly? What you have seen here today... Apes on the five continents will be imitating tomorrow. With knives against guns, with kerosene cans against flamethrowers. Where there is fire, there is smoke. And in that smoke, from this day forward, my people will crouch and conspire and plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall, the day when he finally and self-destructively turns his weapons against his own kind, the day of the writing in the sky, when your cities lie buried under radioactive rubble, when the sea is a dead sea and the land is a wasteland out of which I will lead my people from their captivity and we shall build our own cities in which there will be no place for humans except to serve our ends and we shall found our own armies our own religion our own dynasty and that day is upon you now yeah so i mean like so this kind of at, at this point in uh, jd thompson's career things are starting to take a slide a little bit you know and um as as you mentioned earlier he actually owned the rights to um planet of the apes he, he was set to direct planet of the apes and uh he was unable to do it at the time so um it went to, to franklin j schaefer or whatever but um he 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 came back for was it four and five yeah I for think, conquest um, of the planet of the apes conquest and for and, battle, and, and battle. Of the planet of the apes um yeah and of course at, at this point um the, the producers were, you know, obviously we, we, we all know the Planet of the Apes story, you know, and they kept wanting the same movie made again and again, but the budget kept getting smaller and smaller. And it, it does show, especially, I mean, in Conquest, um, you know, the, the, the apes, uh, there's only like one or two apes with proper um, makeup and the rest are more or less just wearing Halloween masks yeah, and stuff and like that. And wearing you know? outfits so they don't have to actually cover the bodies with anything. And so, yeah, absolutely. So, it, it the, you know, it, it, it does, um, yeah, so Thompson come on board at at this point, and uh, again, I think he was probably just happy for the work, you know. Um, I will say, like, um, okay, Conquest is, you know, it's it's it's. I mean, look, I'm a fan. I, you know, I grew up in. So, of the well, age, how would I, you rate your level of of interest? Because I always refer to myself as like a filthy casual when it comes to Planet of the Apes, because I've met people who are all in like Wrong Reel two eighty four, which was recorded years ago. 
I recorded it with diehards like Bill Scurry and Kevin Marr and John Cribbs. Like they know Planet of the Apes. It's like Kevin Marr likes to say, these are the five fingers of a fist. And like, you know, each movie's totally different in style. And Conquest yeah. was basically the inspiration for the most recent trilogy that we saw. So Con- I know for a lot of diehards, Conquest is actually their favorite of the five. I mean, for me, the most obvious answer is the first one. But once again, yeah. I'm a filthy casual. So what do I know? So where would you kind of categorize yourself in terms of your level of interest in the franchise? Well, I mean, I, so I, I did actually listen listen to that episode uh, with, uh, with the Planet of the Apes. Um, I, I'm even or I would have been even more of a fanatic because I, I also love the TV series of Planet of the Apes. Gotcha. You know so I mean? you're, you're all, you're all up in there. And not only yeah. that, when I was growing up, there was also a cartoon of Planet of the Apes, you know? So there was, it was Planet of the Apes all through my childhood, right through. And I, so I, I, have a, I have a fondness for all the films, you know? Um, I didn't like the remakes, you know? I, 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 there's something about the kitsch nature of the uh, the ape makeup and stuff that just it, it is of its time. And it, 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 for me growing up, um, I loved I loved them all equally. There was, you know, there was no. Um, so you're uh, a five fingers uh, of the fist kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but but obviously now, you know, I, as an older man and now also a filmmaker and writer, I can look at them and I can see how the quality is so bad in in four, three, four, and five compared to one and two, a little bit less, you know. But um, so I can see that, you know. But there is some elements of these films, especially the second, you know, and I think. You know, there's something to be said for Thompson, you know, his input in, in, into especially five, which is, you know, this kind of idea. I mean, he's it's an allegory for what's going on in America during the Vietnam War and stuff like these two, both of these films in a way and in terms of civil rights movement and in the anti-war movement and stuff like that. You know, and there are kind of like lots of nice touches, you know, in, in, in to uh, in conquest, you know, all, all the humans, they dress in black, you know, to, to kind of make them seem like they're Nazis or something like this you know so there's there's kind of stuff in there to make you think about it and stuff um are, are they great movies in terms of you're either a fan of planet of the apes or you're not you know if you're gonna if, if you're gonna watch this, the franchise if you're interested in them you might watch them but um you know i don't know in, in terms of again they're 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 very low on the scale of uh, thompson's uh, best work you know? well i think but, what a lot of people also need to remember is that at this time we, we live, we've lived in this era now for the last 20 years, whether you're talking like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Marvel, whatever. We just live in like this endless era of franchises just going and going and going. But back in the late 60s, early 70s, apart from James Bond, it was unheard of for a franchise just to have like a movie a year and to keep things going. And so I find it from a historical standpoint riveting that they were able – like also in the 80s, sequels would always just be like a thinly veiled remake of the film that came before more often than not, that they were able to go in so many different directions. And I think yeah. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes does have a lot of really cool shit going on with the screenplay that I think holds up really well. And then, of course, McDowell's performance is so compelling and has so much emotion and heart to it. And I love Ricardo Montalban. Montalban as well, yeah. Yeah, he's absolutely. so good. So I, I'm of the first five movies, I think Conquest is my second favorite, but there's something about just the weirdness and the the true late 60s sci-fi of that first film that I can never fully um, let go of. So the first one still is my favorite, even if that's yeah, the absolutely. conventional answer. But I think when it comes to just pure raw creativity, in spite of being hamstrung by a limited budget, I think Conquest is well worth hunting down for people who are interested in their sci-fi history. 
and, and it looks cool, you know. It's it, it's shot in I think I think Century City in the, in the L.A. or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these kind of futuristic type buildings, and it it, it does look, you know, like other. This is nineteen ninety one, the distant future. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when it takes place, you know. So exactly, yeah, exactly. But it still looks, you know. So yeah, there's there's, there's lots to like about it. And there there are some, um, you, you know things in it that that, that are, are uh, stand out but you know and and hark back to the first film like uh, when, when ricardo montalban is, is taking roddy mcdowell's uh, ape through the crowds and it's the ape that shouts at the human you know the, yep. the, get your hands off me or whatever you know but the, so it's, it's, yeah i, I mean I, I like it i've always I, I, it's part of my childhood and my growing up and uh, I'll, I'll never tire and if there, if, it, if there ever these films are on i'll watch them you know and uh, that, that that's about as as good as I can say about them, you know. Yeah, like Battle yeah. for the Planet of the Apes, I like less just because I feel like I don't get into the storyline with his wife and kid at all. But right. I do like seeing the clash between the gorillas who just want to ride horses and fight and battle and that sort of thing and how they're trying to build a society. And I love seeing John Huston stepping in, you know, in yeah. the 2670 and telling this story that takes place right after the nuclear apocalypse. And it's fun seeing Paul Williams, you know, dressed up as a, as an orangutan and that sort of thing. So I think number five has a lot of cool bits, but I don't think number five for me is as satisfying as number four. Number four feels like a down and dirty, genuine sci-fi classic, even if it is modestly budgeted. And also I like the fact that number four is not G rated. It actually, it's the only apes movie that's not G rated. And it's got a little bit more teeth than the uh, yeah. than the other films. Yeah, I mean because there's there's all this violence against the apes, you know, and they're they're, they're like beating them and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, the crazy music and flamethrowers when they're being like beaten, exactly, and tortured, like and flamethrowing yeah, the apes and taught the, to serve drinks and receiving shock therapy. It's yeah. bananas. No, yeah, no pun intended. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, exactly. <laughs> but imagine if if it wasn't about apes, if it was about uh, people treating people like this, you know, be really kind of powerful stuff, you know. But because of because of the ape costume and stuff, it, it's it loses a bit of that in it, you know. Yeah, political but, allegory. Uh, yeah, yeah, but um, I, I don't know, and, and I, I, you know, I I wonder would I have liked uh, J D Thompson to have made the first one because the first one is such a classic, and um, would he have been able to bring more to it or? or would he have made it less, you know, because he would have had more of a budget and stuff like that, you know. So it's hard to say whether I'm glad or not glad because uh, I like uh, Franklin J. Schaefer's uh, version, you know. Yeah, I, I, I prefer to leave the, the first one alone. But yeah. I do like, I mean, John Huston for me is one of the all-time great character actors. And I think in the 70s, he really proved that in addition to being a brilliant filmmaker, he's also really good at telling stories. And just to have a John Huston narration recapping yeah. parts three and four, I mean, that's for me. That's that's heaven. Yeah. I mean, like I, I first discovered his voice as Gandalf in the nineteen seventy seven Hobbit cartoon, and it took me years to connect. Oh, this filmmaker that I'm falling in love with in my twenties is like one of my childhood heroes. And when I, when I finally made that connection, my brain about melted right out of my ears. <laughs> I was like, that's insane! Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, having him in the in battle makes battle absolutely uh, worth watching, even if I find the the battle scene between the, like, the mutants and the apes to be kind of ridiculous, like showing the same tree exploding from five different angles. It's like, all right, I get it. Y'all are taking every shortcut that you can, but I feel I, I feel the limited budget in the in the fifth movie in ways that I just overlook in the fourth. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, like, as I said, when I was a child or when I was a, a young teenager and stuff, 
those things you don't notice. You know, you just know, you're just watching the, the action, and, and so it's it's a continuation of this kind of franchise that you love and stuff. But yeah, when you look back, you you really see the the deficits from lack of budget. You know, and and it's a shame, really. You know, so. What can you do? Yeah, I wonder how well it translates for people who have no sentimental affection. I saw the first Planet of the Apes on TV as a really little kid, and it like fucked me up. It like, upset me. I was really disturbed by someone being lobotomized. I was really disturbed yeah. by like the the rotten corpse on the ship who who aged, and yeah. it, it really disturbed and confused me. And so I think that emotional fascination or connection has never subsided for me. And I, I can still remember just being in awe for the, the final shot. So because I've got some childhood connection to that first movie, I look at the rest of the franchise in a certain light. But if I were a 22-year-old movie freak now, I really have no idea what they would what they would make of these five movies. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know because... Um... With with the remakes and stuff, you know, the, the, all that CGI and the Annie Circus kind of stuff. That's what people are into these days and stuff. And I don't. I think when they look at the 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 costume and the makeup of, of the apes from the first and the whole series, uh, it kind of looks cart, um, you know, Halloween costumey rather than uh, what they're used to these days. You know, so. But but for me, that's the charm, and that's what I love, and that's what I didn't like about the. Uh, the CGI versions of the remakes, you know, that they, yeah, the Matt they, Reeves movies, I guess he did the second and third of the most recent trilogy. I can kind of take yeah. them or leave them. I know some people really love them, but just for, for whatever reason, I've just never been a fan of like a massive fan of any of the, of, of the apes franchises. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just not the, uh, I'm not the target audience, but one little factoid that I love that you learned about battle. Apparently they did a makeup test for a suggestion of a hybrid ape human kid symbolizing or showing that the, not only have they learned to live in peace with each other, that they're fucking and having kids. <laughs> and I think that is so fucking weird. But they decided when they saw the test, they didn't object to it for like a story reason. They're like, oh, well, the test it doesn't look good, so let's not include it. But I just love the fact that like ape human sex was on the table. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Battle for the Planet of the Apes, a rated G movie. Well, that's the that's the missing one that we never got, you know. Oh my six, god! Uh... <laughs> well, around the uh, mid seventies, we have this. I guess uh, it's a pivotal moment in human history where Jay Lee Thompson and Charles Bronson finally decide to start working together, and it's the beginning of a nine film collaboration. And Jay Lee Thompson wasn't exclusively in the Charles Bronson business moving forward. As I mentioned before, he did a pretty interesting slasher movie from nineteen eighty one, Happy Birthday to Me, but from 1976 to 1989, the, the shadow of Charles Bronson looms large over the rest of his career. And I think some of them are actually like really good, sleazy movies. The only kind, like, if you like Canon films and you like yeah. Michael Winter movies and you like Toby Hooper movies and the, some of these directors who made a lot of movies for Canon, I think there's, you, you can't get around the fact that like they were like the heavyweight champions of making these movies that go to depraved places with nudity and violence that you just don't see in other studios. But I grew up on the shit, like the fucking Breaking yeah. franchise and Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja Through the Domination. I, mean, I love canon. I'm, I make yeah. no apologies. So Absolutely. A sensational crime. <laughs> An airtight alibi. We can't lay a finger on this guy. And a chain of evidence. Bring him in. Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer, and he's running out of time. Go ahead, take me in. You can't punish me. 
when the guilty go free. The system is the crime. I'm a mean, selfish son of a bitch. But I want a killer, and what I want comes first. Well, how come I've never heard him mention a daughter? It seldom crosses his mind that he has one. He's one angry man with someone to protect. How long are you with your father? He can make a difference. You like hurting girls? I won't answer that. Girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? I won't listen to your filth. I gotta remind you about evidence obtained under duress. It's inadmissible, Leo. We got no evidence and we can't hold this kid. He's our man, Captain. I'm gonna get him. Found some blood. He's flying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it. After all the evidence is in, he'll reach his own verdict and execute the sentence by the deadline when there is no justice. This man to midnight. Charles Bronson, Lisa Eilbacher, and Andrew Stevens in a Golong Globus production of a J. Lee Thompson film. Ten to midnight. Well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, like with Thompson's sort of earlier films, like what we were talking about, they're timeless, you know. But these films, the Bronson films, are of their time, you know, and they they were most of most of us. We didn't see them in the in the cinema. We we saw them on video. You know, they were they were designed for that certain audience of the. I suppose they were made for teenage boys. You know. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm and I'm in a state of emotional arrested development, so they still appeal to me. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and so from that point of coming at them from that point of view, um, I love these films. You know, gr- growing up, wh- whether it was you know, Ten to Midnight, Murphy's M- Murphy's Law, Fireworker, uh, all these all these uh, Charles Bronson films, and of course like Fireworker with Chuck Norris and uh, Lou Gossett Jr. and stuff like these. These films were like. I watched over and over again, you know, I, I'd rent the tapes out and then I'd rent them out two weeks later and, and watch them again, you know, and, um, you know, they were titillating, you know, you, 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 it was your first chance to see lots of, uh, you know, tits and ass and or sex. And- if you're into singing, seeing dudes dinguses, then you can watch <laughs> 10 to midnight because that guy, the Matilda May equivalent for men is the yeah. bad guy in 10 to midnight where Matilda May a few years later in life force would spend, Seven glorious minutes, totally nude. He definitely has more than seven minutes. But for people who are curious, the full nine thumb collaboration is starts with Saint Ives, then the White Buffalo, then Cabo Blanco, Ten to Midnight, The Evil That Men Do, Murphy's Law, Death Wish Four, The Crackdown, because Michael Winter had moved on, Messenger of Death, and the final one is Kinjite Forbidden Subjects. And for me, I like Ten to Midnight and Kinjite. But I have to admit, I have not seen Messenger of Death. I have not seen The Evil That Men Do. I've not seen Cabo Blanco. I've not seen White Buffalo. So I've seen one, two... You've seen Murphy's Law? I've seen Murphy's Law. So I guess I've seen five of them. Death Wish 4? I've seen Death Wish 4, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, saw it for the first time in preparation for this episode. I've seen Death Wish 1, I think twice. But I don't know why, as a little kid in the 80s, I didn't get bitten by the Charles Bronson bug 
at all at that time. I discovered him in college through things like the Magnificent Seven and the Great Escape. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I get it. What a badass. And that's a hard time. It's like, oh my God, what a fucking stud. And so I came late to Charles Bronson and understanding what his appeal was. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think once Bronson made uh, the first Death Wish, that was he, he kind of remained in that character for the rest of his career. He was he was Paul Kersey for the rest of his career, no matter what he was playing, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, these I mean, as I said, I, I loved most of these films that I seen growing up as as a teenager. I, I loved them all. But yeah, I mean, Bronson I, was probably a little bit like J. Lee Thompson in the sense that they were both kind of tired and uh, had kind of. We're, we're sick of the whole kind of uh, the pressures of these big, huge budget films, and they were just wanted to just want to work, you know. And Bronson wanted to make a film a year, and J. D. Thompson wanted to direct them in it and stuff. Um, and they were successful. Yeah. They, they, I mean, these movies, some of these movies were massive, massive. runaway no, sens- sensations on VHS. And and they were kind of verging, like like Ten to Midnight, for instance. It's kind of verging on the the border of video nasty, you know. Oh yeah. Like, I, I, I would argue it's even it's it's there. They are, yeah. I yeah. mean, like, like they were they were lumped over this side of the pond. They were lumped in with those like Driller Killer and whatever else. You know, they 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 were kind of considered all the same type of film. Um, and of course because it, it there was lots of nudity and stuff. Like it's a funny thing. Like when I was over living in America, I think it was like ninety five or something. Like I was I was hanging out with some friends and we were sitting watching TV late at night on TNT and and it was like ten to midnight. I said let's watch this. Oh, it's great, you know, loads of sex and stuff in it. And we watched it and. There was no nudity. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember this. Like, I, I'd watched this film like 20, 30 times, you know. And what I did realize was that they, they'd actually, for every shot they shot, uh, they also shot another shot with the, the killer in his underwear and the, and the, the, the girls in her underwear. You oh, know? gotcha. Well, that's the whole I, point I, I, of the movie is you have a guy who has a classic, like, erectile dysfunction. He's totally impotent. And the way he shoots his goo is by stripping down nude and murdering women. And he is as mean and nasty and savage of a serial killer or bad guy, whatever you want to call him, that you are likely to find throughout the entire decade of the 1980s. And like, he's a giant karate nerd and like movie freak. And basically yeah. like every negative stereotype about guys who spend too much time alone, like he embodies like, yeah. all the way. Yeah. And, and of course, like the, the whole, like, the, like the, the premise is that he, he gets naked. So he, he, he doesn't leave any clothing fibers or any like that stuff on, on, on when he goes to kill. But of course it was pre DNA days. So there was none of that there. Include, so you kind of think in these days, you think, oh, well, he'd be fucked then because he'd be leaving body hairs and whatever else around the crime scenes and stuff. But at the time, you know, it, it was quite believable. And you've got a, a, a young, uh, what's her name? Uh, John Travolta's wife is in it as Kelly well. Kelly Preston. But she wasn't yeah, Kelly, Kelly Preston yet. She was still no. going by the name, uh, what is it? Kelly Palzis is her, her, was her original birth name. But goddamn, this is like, I guess, for a few years before, like mischief and things like that. And, yeah. uh, and like uh, one where she gets it on with uh, C. Thomas Howell. Anyway, right before yeah. she was about to really pop as one of the great 80s icons who was willing to show a little skin in movies. She yeah. looks like a little angel in this movie, and I, I basically I wailed in sorrow when she, like all the rest of her roommates, gets taken out by the serial killer. I was like, Charles Bronson better go ahead and murder this guy, or I'm just gonna <laughs> lose my fucking shit. Yeah, 
but yeah, so it's it's it, this relationship of like Charles Bronson and Jaylee Thompson. You 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 were saying earlier like uh, with because Bronson before that he was a Michael Winner guy and, yeah. and but but him and Winner kind of ha- had some differences. Winner like you were saying wanted him to do three takes instead of two. How you know? dare you? <laughs> uh, ex- exactly, you know. And uh, so so um, Jaylee Thompson was a known was a guy who just like very easy going. Yep. That's good enough. Let's move on to next uh, next setup or whatever. So um, they they connected and they they got on really well. And uh, Bronson, like I think one of the films I don't I think it might have been later on Messenger of Death was was another film that uh, J D Thompson came in to take over from the uh, the director who got fired or whatever. But um, yeah, they, I mean, they pumped out all these films, and I, I can understand, you know, J. Lee Thompson at this point in his career, he's he, he's getting he's getting on, he's in his like late sixties, whatever, and he's getting work on, you know, and his films are getting, you know, a, a huge uh, market. But nothing about Ten to Midnight suggests to me like an aging filmmaker. If someone told me, oh, this was made by like a twenty-eight-year-old who straight yeah. out of USC, I would have believed it. I me, mean, it's directed with energy and intensity. I mean, it's. A fucking like like I said, it's a sleazy movie, but in the best possible way. And there are some moments where I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like there's in the middle of a party, Bronson's uh, cop partner is dancing with uh, Bronson's daughter, and they hear yeah. what they think are like screams of pain. They open up the door, and it turns out it's like two people getting it on. But you proceed to see the nastiest shot of this dude's hairy ass cracking balls <laughs> dropping down the frame. Like you can't even enjoy the fact that you're seeing this lovely girl's tits off to the side because you're just seeing this guy's taint. I was like, dude, come on! Like, either do some gro- grooming or let's reframe the shot. <laughs> it was yeah, so yeah. gross. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, no, that's it. Like, but you know, it, growing up in Catholic Ireland, you know, th- these films were the ones that, like, uh, you know, for for somebody who's going to you know Catholic school, Christian Brothers and stuff like that, it was great getting these kind of things because you didn't see a whole lot of uh, sex going on or nudity and stuff, you know, in, in films. And uh, yeah, I mean. Most of my peers, my t- my friends, teenagers like myself, we we we, we watched and rewatched these films over and over again, you know, because uh, it, it was because we didn't have Playboy magazine over here, we couldn't get pornos or anything like that, you know. There was no uh, the only sex that you saw or nudity was was what you were going to see on TV or rent on a video. Well, I love how and Playboy, went, which is so vanilla, would be banned, but that you could watch could it, Ten to Midnight, which buy, is a savage, yeah. fucked up movie, and I love. Apparently Charles Bronson was supposed to have like a big wrestling match with the bad guy at the end. He's like, you know what? Not that down with wrestling with this naked dude with a knife. And so instead he just shoots him through the forehead. But I love all Bronson, who's well into his 60s, he's got plastic surgery to do this movie. He's, he's chasing after the killer and kind of lightly jogging while the other guy's sprinting, sprinting along. And then you hear this little whoosh, like swirling sound. And somehow magically Bronson's in front of him. It's like, well, yeah. how'd that happen? But like, you know, he, just, he just rolled it. Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, these are great. I mean, I, I, like I said, they're of their time. So if you watch them today, you have to kind of accept that they're um, they're, they're 80s, uh, almost straight to video film. And they go up and down in quality. Like, I liked Murphy's Law a lot less. I like Death yep. Wish 4 a lot less. I, mean, I know some people are massive Death Wish fanatics. It's a franchise I've never necessarily been, like, enthralled with. Like I said, I've seen the first one, I think, twice, and I've seen two and three. But it just never really grabbed me. But I did... Get into Kenjite because I feel like in this movie, Bronson just goes all in to his persona that he's been creating. There is a world 
of shadow and darkness. If we had brought a weak man, put her on the streets. A world we never see. We have a 14-year-old brought in last night. Been in town 72 hours. Gang raped, abandoned. A realm of secret appetites and hidden passions. She wasn't enjoying it. Why didn't she cry for help? Because of shame. A realm where nothing is taboo. It was Duke who put you out on the street. He made you turn tricks. Duke was good to me. Charles Bronson. Everybody on the floor, now! Kinjite, forbidden subjects. Fumiko is our daughter, and she's just a young girl. It is different in Japan. A daughter like Fumiko-san would be an innocent. I can imagine how that guy must feel, being the father of a teenager. Hi, Daddy. Would you rather she were in the back seat of the car somewhere? Rita's your daughter. She's not your wife. Every desire becomes obsession. Somebody cops a feel off Rita on the bus, and you're behaving like she was raped or something. And every obsession explodes into violence. <laughs> This feeling of revenge that's eating my gut. We're all beset with demons. Every one of us. You make a living selling little kids. I'm gonna put you out of business. And for me, it almost like felt like I was watching like an Andy Sidaris movie or something like that. But this is yet another movie that goes into really sleazy territory and has one of my great childhood crushes. At this time, as a little boy, Charles in Charge was a big thing in America. So Nicole Eggert was like one of my major childhood crushes. So to see her playing this call girl underage, I think she was 16 or 17 when she made yeah. this movie. But I mean, she doesn't show any nude or anything like that, but she plays a call girl in the movie. I feel like this movie was taking me into very, um, I guess, forbidden territories. I mean, it's in the title of the movie. But yeah. Bronson, who's almost 70, still throwing like high kicks and st- he's still doing some crazy action in spite of the fact yeah. that he is old as balls at this point. Yeah, it, it's funny because like I rewatched it there last week and uh, my, I think my teenage imagination had. The, the the suggestivity of some of the scenes with the with the young schoolgirls on the train getting felt up and stuff like that, you know, who at that time I would have been the same age as those young schoolgirls, so it was okay to kind of be titillated by it, you know, and stuff like that. But like my my, my teenage imagination made me believe I saw a lot more than yeah, yeah, yeah. what I well, saw. A, all right, quick ethical question for you: If you, as a little boy or a teenager, like a yeah. girl in a movie who's also like 15, 16, 17 years old. Are you forbidden from still enjoying that later on as a dirty old man knocking at the door of like 45 yes. or 50? And it's like, because Nicole exactly. Eggert is a childhood crush for me, so I don't feel any yeah. guilt enjoying her in a movie. But I was like, ugh, but you know, I'm like almost 30 years older than her. Like, so maybe I ought to tap yeah. the brakes. <laughs> so, like, yeah, so the, the, as, as a film goer for all those years, especially you know, growing up in the 80s and stuff like that, it, it, there are these ethical problems that arise you know for and so so for my generation of people it would be take commando for instance you've got the daughter who gets kidnapped so yeah when that film was made and came out i was the same age as her so of course i fancy this girl you know i was like oh i want to be i want to be the one to rescue her all that sort of stuff and and then like you know years later you kind of rewatch it 
and you're kind of looking at this girl who you had like kind of strong feelings for or whatever, you know, and then you kind of think, oh, so he's got to watch Embrace of, of the Vampire instead. So yeah, that's kind of creepy. Or, or, you know, then I suppose the, the, the next generation or two after me, they would have had the, um, the film with, uh, you know, Natalie Portman, for instance, when she first kind of broke on the scene. The professional. It, yeah. I was showing it, the professional, my little brother, when he was either 12 or 13, I said, look, this movie is controversial because of the way Natalie Portman is dressed and portrayed. I said, however, you as a 12 year old boy, <laughs> Live it up. I was like, enjoy the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so it's kind of, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a thing that you you, you kind of, you, you see. I mean, there was another film with Natalie Portman, I think it was, was it Beautiful Girls or something like that, where, uh, uh, what's that actor, Timothy, um, oh shit, what's his name? He, he, he kind of, he's an older guy and he's meeting this, next door neighbor who's now like say 13 or something like that and he's kind of this this kind of romantic thing between them but he obviously knows he's too way too old for her and she's only a kid but they they connect on some sort of level you know so there is these kind of things this, this ethical thing that you feel when you look back on uh, young actors who were the same age as you and you saw them and you kind of had sexual feelings for them and then when you when you come back as an older man, and you it makes you feel your age. Well, yeah, without it, a doubt. Yeah, and it makes you feel like a virgin on creepiness. You know, but I couldn't <laughs> believe some of the scenes and lines in Kinjite. Like Bronson's daughter is going to a Catholic school, totally innocent, and then she, when she gets filled up by the Japanese businessman, who later on Bronson's trying to save his daughter, who's been kidnapped and sold into like you know sexual slavery and whatnot. But when Bronson's daughter gets filled up and gets off the bus, she says. Her exact line is, so don't cancel me for saying this, because in the movie she says, some Oriental guy touched my holy of holies. I was like, oh my fucking God. I was like, in 2021, if you put that line in a movie, they would put you like in jail. But yeah. <laughs> it's like, I could not fucking believe some of the shit that was in this. Or Bronson, when he first catches the guy trying to get it on with Nicole Eggert in the beginning of the movie, not only do they escort her out, but Bronson sticks around afterwards to beat up the John, and then he picks up the dildo and tells him he's about to find out how it feels to be one of those kids. I was like, okay. That, that's, then, I was like, that's aggressive. And then when he throws the bad guy in jail at the end, he does it in, with throws him in deliberately in a cage with a bunch of rapists with like Danny Trejo taunting him <laughs> from another cell. And John Bronson just says, that's justice. And that's the end of the movie. It's like, yeah. are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, like, like, there's so many, like that that scene with the dildo, like, you you know, because it cuts, but you know that he's after fucking raping this guy with the dildo. You know what I mean? And uh, it's, it, but it's insinuated, but you don't know, you don't see it, but it it's there in your in your head. And same with like the the the, the final scene, like you know, the guy's just he's getting raped. Oh <laughs> my god, yeah. Danny Trejo, there's cool scene and pop up in a lot of these. He pops up yeah. in uh, Death Wish Four, and I'm, yeah. I'm a massive, massive Danny Trejo fan. I think he's an incredible character actor and just so physically interesting. But in in the 1980s, he was still like you know young and virile. I guess he been a boxer in prison so he's just like shredded and just he just has always had this like, gritty authenticity about him and so i love seeing him pop up in these in these canon films but man canon i don't know if we'll ever see a company like that ever again and obviously that documentary um oh, electric boogaloo well, the canon film story was it's just yeah. one of my all-time favorite documentaries i love it yeah it's so good you know yeah, Golden Globus, you know, like whenever you see that logo coming up, you just get this kind of like, feeling. Oh boy! <laughs> if, you, if you've grown up in the eighties and stuff, then it's it, it's like a yeah, it's just a, a special. It's almost like you know, some religious symbol for for film for film goers of the eighties and stuff. But like they made some innocent movies. I mean, Breaking One and Two are pretty innocent, and I mean, I don't know, they they were just they were willing to make. 
any kind of conceivable genre, whether we're making superhero Superman four or American Ninja, Action Jackson. <laughs> I don't know, so now, many I've of... never seen Firewalker from eighty six. How how strong is uh, is Firewalker? Yeah, I, I mean, again, like watching it back then. I, I was enthralled, you know, like watching it, it was, it, I loved it, you know, it's Chuck Norris, it's Lou Gossett Jr., you know, it was kind of a little bit of comedy thrown into it and stuff like that, but um, yeah, I mean, like, look, I haven't seen, I didn't bother re-watching it for this, and I and I, I don't remember much of the plot or anything like that, you know, but but from my memories of the time, I, I remembered enjoying it, you know, it, it was just another great movie to rent out on a Friday evening from the video shop, you know, and you'd, you'd, uh, yeah, all, I mean, all these uh, Canon films, Golden Globus productions, they just, they, they were all more or less, the, you knew what you were getting, you know, it was all, it, it was, you're going to get violence, you're going to get sex, you're going to get bare breasts, you're going to get, uh, you know, blood and guts and whatnot, and they, they delivered, you know, they, they did what they said in the tin, and, and, and that is what these films that uh, J. Lee Thompson made with Bronson, that's what they're about, that's what you get, there's no... Uh, they're not hiding behind the, the, the idea that you're, you're going to get a serious they're, film. Yeah, they're giving you exactly what you've signed up for. But another one that J. Lee Thompson made from this time, which I've not seen, but they called attention to it in the documentary, Electric Boogaloo, where they refer to it as like one of the, like, the, the worst movies that Canon ever made, but King Solomon's Minds, which was their attempt to go full Raiders Indiana of the Lost Jones, Ark. Yeah. Romance in a Stone type film. Yeah, I mean, I saw it too, and I, and I, probably, I probably seen it twice or so when I was of that age and stuff. Yeah, Richard Chamberlain. Like and wrestling yeah, it, alligators it was, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, they, they, were, it was, they were just feeding into that whole Indiana Jones, Romance in a Stone type thing. And, uh, it's yeah, an early it's, starring role for Sharon Stone. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it, it, no, it, it was much more child-orientated than the rest of their stuff. You know, it, it definitely wasn't, you, you weren't getting sex and blood and violence and guts. You were getting like, Swinging from ropes and, and uh, you know running from. Uh, I've always been curious. I read King Solomon's Minds in college, and it's an astonishing piece of fiction. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like reading fiction of the British Empire because it has a rather unapologetic view of spreading. Uh, you know, the sun never sets on the English Empire, etc. Yeah. But so, but if you can get over that uh, that hurdle, it's a remarkable adventure story. And so I've, but I've always avoided it because I was like, Ugh. I was like, I don't know if this movie is going to measure up to that. <laughs> that classic no i mean i mean it, it, it probably would have been something that you'd watch and you'd think yeah it was all right you know back then but look, i i it wouldn't be something i'd i'd search out and uh re-watch now you know so gotcha well he had a remarkable career i feel like everybody out there who wants to be dreams of being a filmmaker of course everybody's like oh well, i want to be louis buñuel or ingmar bergman or you know we take you take pick your auteur out there or whatever but a J. lee thompson he went out there and did it and made what, like 40 or 50 movies around the world, yeah. worked with movie stars, worked with every conceivable genre, left behind a, 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 a filmography and a legacy that people still enjoy watching to this day. I've just got 40, I just said, yeah, 49 credits to his name. I just noticed that one of his last credits was he was a boom operator on Bride of Chucky. Yeah. So he still enjoyed just being you know, being around it. So, so he just wanted to be on the set, you know, even if he couldn't make a film, he was a boom operator on Bride of Chucky. So it says it all right there. He, you know, he, he the guy, he just loved making films, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think if, if I were to make recommendations, I think Ice Cold and Alex, Undisputed Masterpiece, Guns and Averone, yeah. Undisputed Masterpiece, like Cape Fear, yeah. like I said before, two thirds 
of a masterpiece. And then depending upon your interest in the Planet Apes franchise, I mean, Conquest of the Planet Apes, it was the inspiration for a giant trilogy in the 21st century. Clearly, it has its fans. And when it comes to the Bronson flicks, 10 to midnight, I'm in. I, I, I'm on board. It's a, it's a dark movie. It's a disturbing movie. But if you like sl- if you like slasher movies, Please, if you like slasher. serial killer movies, if you like this kind of material, and when you people always criticize the movies for the objectification of women, well, this isn't a, the objectification of men because the the bad guy he's <laughs> nude like for forty five straight minutes. You you, you yeah. see every inch of the guy many times it, over. It, so it was the perfect date film because the <laughs> yeah. girl's got something, the guy's got something, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, but it kind of bounces the scales of with like you know <laughs> from the other um, you know movies that Canna might have made at that yeah. time. So yeah. I think uh, he's a, a fascinating character, and when you first pitched it, I was like, "Oh, like Jay Lee Thompson is like, is there enough to talk about?" Clearly, there is. I, I've had a fucking blast yeah. watching his movies and talking about his career. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and like myself, like I do plan to dig into his uh, pre Ice Golden Alex's kitchen sink uh, realist uh, dramas. You know, I, I just, there's still a few I want to see. Blonde Sinner from 1956 has a very provocative poster. It stars Diana Doors, and it's a uh, a young woman who's been abused and taken advantage of by all the men in her life. Finally, finds a man she believes truly loves her, but she snaps when she finds out that he too is uh, cheating on her and she kills her boyfriend's mistress. <laughs> so yeah, that sounds, sounds, that's 1956. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. And then he had like, you know, woman in a dressing gown in 1957. Yeah, he, he done like quite a few, like Diana Doors, I don't know if she's as well known in the States as she would be in Europe, but she's like this Marilyn Monroe-esque type figure. Yeah, she, platinum blonde. Blonde bombshell. And again, she she was, uh, I think she was decapitated in a car crash. You know, so oh, Jane Mansfield. That was Jane Mansfield. Oh, that was Jane Mansfield. But yeah. I think Diana Doris, did she die young? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I'm confusing them. But yeah, she's, um, yeah. Well, so there's, you know, there's a few of them that I, I wouldn't mind checking out. But yeah, Cocktails yeah, I mean, I, in the Kitchen from 1954. I mean, I love these titles. These titles are inc- yeah. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. An so, alligator yeah, named Daisy. I mean, what the fuck is that about? I mean, all this stuff sounds fascinating. But yeah, I love all the posters from his 50s movies. It's like a bunch of comedies and musicals and women in prison movies. But the man was not afraid to, to put in the hours and, and do some, indulge in some hard work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what, uh, if, if you had to, just as a way of wrapping up, if you had to pick three J. Lee Thompson movies that you would recommend to people, what, 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 what's like the trinity? Yeah, well, it, it has to I mean. And in 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 the order of number one would be Ice Cold and Alex. Um, number two, I mean, I would probably go Cape Fear and then Guns and Navarone in terms of um, for my own personal taste. I I think that they would be number one, two, and three. Um, I, I don't think there could be any other um, films included because um, I mean, look, there are like Northwest Frontier, which we didn't talk about, was a huge success. You know, um, Lauren Bacall was in it, and um, it's also a pretty good film. But um, those are those are the three that those are his. If, and if those are the only three films he made, he would probably be more renowned than because he'd he be like a Robert Aldrich or like a Richard Brooks or some of these directors yeah. that like I mean that we are that are very fondly remembered. Yeah, and just in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you had all these tough guy directors or Don Siegel. He'd yeah. be mentioned in the same breath as like Don Siegel if he had sustained that late 50s, early 60s period. But I don't want to part with his Charles Bronson period, no. so uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad he went there. No, they were a major part of my growing up, so I- I'm all for them. And I-, I think, yes, they're definitely worth checking out if you want a good a good laugh for an hour and a half, you know? Very cool. Well, where can people find you if they want to chastise you for uh, yeah. suggesting all these sleazy movies from the 80s? Or if they want to revel in all these ex- astonishing World War II films that he made? 
Yeah, please do. I'd I'd, I'd love to uh, discuss with anybody. You know, Ice Cold and Alex for, for sure. I think it's, I think it's the best British war movie of all time. You know, I, I think it. It, it maybe changes from year to year between that and Bridge of the River Kwai, so I'd argue anybody with that. But uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Bob Unsound um, or at Dublin Filmmaker, so uh, find me there. Please. And any Facebook presence? Yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook, but I don't use it, so I wouldn't bother saying it. You know, I'm, okay. I I only use Facebook because I I organize several filmmaking groups from there, so that's all I use it for. You well, know? I'm going to be using Facebook more moving forward because my main Twitter account got torpedoed by Twitter because uh, for people, I, I don't know if I've even mentioned it on the podcast yet, but my main Twitter account got suspended because of a tweet from a couple of years ago where I included the Live and Let Die title sequence from the movie. And so Universal Music Group filed a DMCA notice against shitloads of accounts, all of whom had posted Paul McCartney's music in different ways over the years. And yeah. I'm still appealing the decision whether or not I get the account back. Who knows? But yeah, Twitter has decided to tighten things up and even if they give me my account back i've still got thousands of other tweets that are yeah. equally likely to get me banned so who the hell knows what the future might bring but i still got my at wrong real account and my at geeking out account and my facebook account so i still have social media but yeah my, my relationship with twitter twitter has become strained yeah, <laughs> since they took away my my main account and do you, and do you think that's permanent like or is it i don't know uh, yeah well i mean who, who the hell knows it's it's a complete black box with no transparency. YouTube is the total opposite. They have incredible transparency. I've had an account for five years and never once have had any trouble whatsoever. Yeah, you get flagged and they just say, oh, this, this can be monetized or not monetized and stuff. So that, that's all right. And if you it? do get a strike, they have a very clear policy. Look, every month that you go without getting a strike, a strike will fall off. But if you have three strikes at one time, you get terminated, but I've never had a single strike on my YouTube account and yeah. they make it very clear, but you, Twitter, they seem to be kind of making it up as they go along. At any rate, I'm in Twitter jail, but we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please remember to leave a rating and review and subscribe and all those wonderful, beautiful things and hunt down Mr. O'Mara on Twitter to talk flicks with them, but hunt down some J. Lee Thompson flicks as well, but we hope you've enjoyed the episode, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.